generation, Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, getting right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Buckle up. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. The report from Iron Mountain, the agenda for enforced peace. Is the coming world order and the supposed peace that it offers a flawless system, or does this satanically backed crusade against God's created order leave the ruling class with problems they can't solve? We're going to talk about that and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Ladies, gentlemen, peace lovers, and warmongers, everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we like to take you beyond conspiracy theories and help get you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. Now, we have always got a lot to talk about. Oh, we've heard the comments, we've got the feedback, we have the DMs, we got the text messages, we even got the smoke signals and the pigeon carriers. You wanted to tell us every episode, you guys are packing in goo gobs. I said goo gobs? Christopher D, are you familiar with the technical qualifications of goo gobs? He said negative, son. Goo gobs of information into every episode. And I'm here to let you know that we ain't stopping today. Today is going to be a follow up to the last 80 some episodes of Goo Gobs of Information. So sit back, sit forward, buckle up, and put your thinking caps on because Christopher Dean is in the house, live and in effect, ready to school us on some things that we need to talk about today. But it would be remiss for me. Not to give you an introductory warm up so that you can get those cognitive juices flowing into your mind. So you might be wondering, what are they going to talk about today? Because it said the report from Iron Mountain, the agenda for enforced peace. Don't really know what that means. Well, let me tell you, we're going to talk about this whole report. And is it really as scary as it seems to be? We're also going to get into what does a war latent system have to worry about in times of peace? Believe me, that peace is in quotation marks. And we do want to discuss, is there any system that is set to dethrone the agendas of the satanic elite? But before we get into all of that, y'all know what to do. Warm them palms up, start smashing them together. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome my co-host, the one and only Mr. Christopher How's it going, bro? What's happening, baby? How we doing this week? We're doing good. Real good. Little bit sleepy, but you know, get charged up with some caffeine. Now I'm ready to roll. Well, you know, the times are changing. It's getting a bit colder outside. I can understand wanting to snuggle in a little bit on recording day, but you are out here in the studio. I am. Braving the weather. (laughs) making sure that the people get what they need. And I love it because, Christopher, we need to talk about this report from Iron Mountain and its agenda for enforced peace. (laughs) 
in a society and a culture that loves violence and seems to push war. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this this movie called Lord of War. It's a uh, it's one of those indie classics, I think, with Nicolas Cage. And at the opening of this this movie, he says that there are 550 million firearms that are in circulation worldwide, which is actually one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. And then he makes this curious little quip. He goes, the only question is, how do we arm the other 11? (laughs) The world's biggest arms suppliers are actually the United States, United Kingdom, Russia, France, and China. They curiously are also the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Huh. Given the immense profits that are garnered from war profiteering, it makes me wonder who would be willing to fund a peace agenda and would said peace really be a flawless system or is the very nature of conflict embedded in humanity to such a degree that social economic political strategies will never be able to root out conflict you know is there any hope for as ultron put it peace in our time <laughs> uh yeah it's it's definitely an, an interesting conversation and i've been wanting to do this particular show for a long time you have yes <laughs> I, I remember when you you hit me with it and you're like we need to do report from iron mountain i was like no, 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 no. That means we got more reading to do. We are uh-huh. already up to our eyebrows and books. Yeah, no doubt. But this one was super fascinating as as a topic and as a concept. Uh-huh. It is. And I really want to jump into those concepts, but in order for it to make sense, I think we might need to bring people up to speed on what the book actually is. What is the report from Iron Mountain? So to to get into it, there is actually a bit of controversy as to whether or not the report is actually authentic. So the book is titled The Report from Iron Mountain on the Possibility and Desirability of Peace. It was published as nonfiction by Dial Press in 1967. Hmm. And not much is known about the author Leonard Lewin, except for the fact that he wrote this book. And it's the only book that he's written, which which is interesting to me. In the book, John Doe supposedly leaked the report to Lewin, and it was a government report from a 15-person think tank that ran from 1963 to 1966, funded by the government, on how to maintain governmental control on the populace in the event of a perpetual peacetime. Okay, see, that doesn't sound suspicious. How to maintain governmental (laughs) control at a time of peace. Now, you know how much I don't like the other book that we, from time to time, mention. What is it, 1984? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, but it has that 1984-esque feel. It does. You know, we're going to give you peace via foot in your throat. Right, right, yeah. Because I've never heard governmental control be very loosely kind of like guidelines <laughs> on a road, you know. We suggest you head over here. It's a suggestion. It's something that we would like to see you do. But you don't have to. You're free to make your own decisions. It's more like <laughs> right. a concrete barrier that says you're stuck. Right. Go this way only. <laughs> no, absolutely. And it's interesting because when the book was first released, there wasn't an actual author listed. You know, like I said, John Doe is the one that leaked the report. And uh, Leonard Lewin just wrote the um, introduction to it. Okay. 
But later in, I think it was about 1972, after Lewin read the, the Pentagon Papers, and for those that don't know, the Pentagon Papers, they were officially titled The Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force. It was a United States Department of Defense history of the United States political and military involvement in Vietnam. And it was released to the New York Times in 1971. A New York mm-hmm. Times article in 96 said that the Pentagon Papers had demonstrated, among other things, that Lyndon B. Johnson's administration had systematically lied not only to the public, but also to Congress. Isn't that criminal? Yes, it is. You're not supposed to do that, right? <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. It's illegal. But the government doesn't lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> the government doesn't lie. That's, that's what I've been told. By the government? <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Oh, that's funny. But yeah, so 1972, Lewin reads these papers, and uh, I, I couldn't figure out if he was like on a talk show or something, or if he he wrote like into a newspaper. But he said mm-hmm. that they were as outrageous morally and intellectually as his own satiric creation. He said the charade is over. Some of the documents read like parodies of Iron Mountain rather than the reverse, which implies that. <laughs> the book report from iron mountain was a parody and not an actual document. Yeah. But the problem is let's say we go with that and it's true that it is a satire. Mm -hmm. You know, that thing where they say that, uh, what is it? Um, what is it? Truth is often stranger than fiction. Uh huh. You know, this is a fictitious work. I bet you the truth is even crazier. Oh, probably. It might not only mirror, the fictitious work, it might extend well beyond even what, what Lewin's supposed to satire was. Right. Right. And I think it's just, I mean, this is just me. I think it's suspicious that, you know, it was published as nonfiction and five years went by before he ever came out and said anything about, you know, him actually being the one who wrote it. So that's, that that's a little bit of suspicion um, just on its face, but um, if, if we take the report as being accurate, this secret study group would have been formed during the Kennedy administration. And to add to the uncertainty on whether or not it's authentic, when uh, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, he was a Kennedy administration ambassador to India and a CFR member, he was rumored to actually be a participant in the study. And he wrote in the Washington Post using his pseudonym, Herschel McLandris, and he said, as I would put my personal repute behind the authenticity of this document, so I would testify to the validity of its conclusions. My only reser- reservations relate to the wisdom of releasing it to an obviously unconditioned public. <laughs> Yo, that's not <laughs> alarming. No. And, and everyone else is just like, well, of course, this is part of the hoax, right? I'm like, uh... I don't know. So the the question that I kept thinking to myself as I was doing research, like, is it real? Is if it was real, would it, would it look any different? Cause they'd still like, if the government came in and said, Hey, Lewin, you didn't have the right to put this out. Oh, now he's got a backpedal, right? It would look exactly the Mm -hmm. same if the document was 100% accurate. So here's kind of like my question. If, if somebody leaked on the internet, how to let's not say the internet let's take it so far let's put it in this uh time frame 
if someone in the 1970s had leaked to a newspaper or some other article or, or, or publication company how to build a bomb, and they said that it was from the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. right? But it wasn't actually a Department of Defense funded. Maybe this person just had knowledge on how to build a bomb, and somebody goes out and builds it. Does the okay. bomb work is the question. Okay. I see what you're saying. Right? Where I don't. It's not that I don't care who wrote it. You know, somebody said, well, whoa, 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 whoa. That, that's not a legitimate thing. You know, the Department of Defense didn't put that out. These are false schematics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, but if a person follows those false schematics, will the thing that they made go boom? And okay. if it does, oh, yo, I don't think it's false in the way that you're trying to get me to think it's false. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's a really good point. I think that's concerning because I think that might be part of, you know, you mentioned one time that there were three things that people have to deal with. I think it was uh, disinformation, misinformation, and lack of information. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. If those are the three, then what are we dealing with here when we say that this is, this is not legitimate? You know, is that a disinformation issue? Is that a misinformation? Or is it straight lack of information? Like, you don't know really how <laughs> accurate this may be. Yeah. Well, you're cracking up. What's up? What you're not going to do is you're not going to quote Dean back to Dean. That's what you're not going to do. I figured you love that. (laughs) No, I did. But I was like, I actually didn't take that into consideration at all. So no, but no, you're dead on. You're dead on. That's hilarious. (laughs) That's funny. All right. I'm a chill. (laughs) No, it's all right. I like it. I like it. But yeah, like you're saying, hoax or not, the thoughts and the recommended actions that this report puts out are quite disturbing. And the report actually regards peace as a troublesome thing for a nation and offers systematic reasons why. It actually makes me think that maybe every single Miss America contestant might be wrong. What is the one most important thing our society needs? I would have to say world peace. Definitely World peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. <laughs> is that Miss It is. I tried to find. <laughs> I tried to find a compilation <laughs> of like actual Miss America contestants, and it, it was just too difficult. So I snatched that one. <laughs> I'm really upset that I know it's Miss I love that you know it's Miss Oh, no, no. I need to go watch something incredibly manly and masculine. I think I need to watch Top Gun (laughs) just to balance that out. I think that we left masculinity at the door when so many of our references are colored by Disney cartoons. (laughs) Disney can be masculine. It's a whole new world. Not anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Replacement theory will have you questioning that. Right, right. But yeah, it, it, it states that peace might actually be an obstacle for the formation of the new world order. And the first place I ever heard, yeah, the first place I ever heard about the report from Iron Mountain was actually G. Edward Griffin in his book, Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we were going through that. Yeah. And that popped up. And I was like, ooh, this, this needs a read. But this is what uh, Griffin says in chapter 24 of his book. He says, the substance of these stratagems For the weakening of the United States so it can be more easily merged into a global government based on the model of collectivism can be traced to a think tank study released in 1966 called the Report from Iron Mountain. 
Although the origin of this report is highly debated, the document itself hints that it was commissioned by Department of Defense under uh, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. And we keep, this name keeps coming up. So slight insert to the, yeah, to, yeah McNamara all the time. Gulf of Tonkin incident, the, uh, what was it, uh, Project uh, Popeye for the weather manipulation. Like his name, if his name's attached to it, it's probably bad. But going back to the excerpt, um, commissioned by Department of Defense under Defense Secretary McNamara and was produced by the Hudson Institute located at the base of Iron Mountain in Croton-on-Hudson, New York. So the Hudson Institute was founded and directed by Herman Kahn, formerly of the Rand Corporation. Both McNamara and Kahn were members of the CFR. The self-proclaimed purpose of the study was to explore various ways to stabilize society. Praiseworthy as that might sound, a reading of the report soon reveals that the word society is used synonymously with the word government. Furthermore, the word stabilize is used as meaning to preserve and to perpetuate. It is clear from the start that the nature of the study was to analyze the different ways a government can perpetuate itself in power, ways to control its citizens and prevent them from rebelling. It was stated at the beginning of the report that morality was not an issue. The study did not address questions of right or wrong, nor did it deal with such concepts as freedom or human rights. Ideology was not an issue, nor patriotism, nor religious precepts. Its sole concern was how to perpetuate the existing government. And then he has this from the actual report. Previous studies have taken the desirability of peace, the importance of human life, the superiority of democratic institutions, the greatest good for the greatest number, the dignity of the individual, the desirability of maximum health and longevity, and other such wishful premises as axiomatic values necessary to the justification of a study of peace issues. We have not found them so. We have attempted to apply the standards of physical science to our thinking, the principal characteristic of which is not uh, quantification, as is popularly believed, but that in Whitehead's words, it ignores all judgments of value, for instance, all aesthetic and moral judgments. Gee whiz. Griffin goes on to say, the major conclusion of the report was that in the past, war has been the only reliable means to achieve that goal. It contends that only during war times or of the threat of war are the masses compliant enough to carry the yoke of government without complaint. Fear of conquest and pillage by an enemy can make almost any burden seem acceptable by comparison. War can be used to arouse human passion and patriotic feelings of loyalty to the nation's leaders. No amount of sacrifice in the name of victory will be rejected. Resistance is viewed as treason, but in times of peace, people become resentful of high taxes, shortages, and bureaucratic intervention. When they become disrespectful of their leaders, they become dangerous." No government has long survived without enemies and armed conflict. War, therefore, has been indispensable, an indispensable condition for stabilizing society. And these are the report's exact words. The war system not only has been essential to the existence of nations as independent political entities, but has been equally indispensable to their stable political structure. Without it, no government has ever been able to obtain acquiescence in the legitimacy or right to rule its society. The possibility of war provides the sense of external necessity, 
without which no government can long remain in power. The historical record reveals one instance after another where the failure of a regime to maintain the credibility of a war threat led to its disillusion by the forces of private interest, of reactions to social injustice, or of other disintegrative elements. The organization of society for the possibility of war is the principal political stabilizer. It has enabled societies to maintain necessary class distinctions, and it has ensured the subordination of the citizens to the state by virtue of the residual war powers inherent in the concept of nationhood. It's a pretty dark idea. Yes. It's a real interesting twist on on the whole concept of war. And one of the things I thought as I was reading this book is it really seems as though this report is a glimpse into the minds of those that we call the parasite class. What do you mean? So like a lot of times we are analyzing the, the behaviors or the actions or the agendas, right? Based on their face value. And we try to piece together the, um, like the actual motives. Like this is what they're doing, but this is what it means. Right. We have to work in reverse and like de-engineer. Right. Right. Reverse engineer. Yeah. 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 That's exactly. This report seems to be coming from the actual minds, like what they're thinking and how they're thinking, you know, first off, not in, in principles of morality. Right. Yeah. yeah, So it's, it it was so interesting to hear the way that, that Lewin or whether it's an authentic document breaks this down is it really seems like a, a glimpse into the mind of the parasite class for me. Right. It's almost as though let's take all the breaks off and see what can we come up with. Don't worry right. about morality. Don't worry about religion. Don't worry about political affiliations. All the normal things that would that would give a sensible person some measure of pause, some right. measure of, mm, well, maybe we shouldn't. A reflective mm-hmm. moment of, is this a good idea? Uh-uh, we don't want that. We want pure from the bottom of your heart, if you will, or from the core of your being, give us your best thoughts. Right. No chance whatsoever that that's going to go left to center. <laughs> right. 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 Because right, people are inherently good. Yeah. But, you know, since, since you said it like that, it reminds me McNamara's response to Project Popeye. Which was? When they were like, uh, you know, well, the, there's a, it's, it's controversial. You know, to do weather oh. manipulation and McNamara's like, well, that never stopped us before. You know, it yeah, seems yeah, to be yeah, yeah. in this vein of thinking. Like, why would we be concerned about that at all? <laughs> <laughs> really makes you wonder about the people that have positions of power. Right. I mean, serious power and influence. Yeah, it really does. And this report, it actually encourages the type of military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about in his farewell address. You know what I'm talking about. This one. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, The United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. 
we have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. How to do this? Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. It's so interesting. It is. Give me give give me your feedback. Um. Well. Well. First off, I've never heard that that speech in its entirety, or even that section. I don't know if that oh, was really? a full speech. No, the full one's like 16 and a half minutes. Okay. Um, but I've he- I've heard it constantly referenced. That okay. Eisenhower was the one that, that warned us about the military-industrial complex. And it was even that language that was introduced into the English lexicon mm-hmm. that now became the basis for every other industrial complex, whether it's the pharmaceutical industrial complex, the prison industrial complex. You know, this idea of an industrial complex mechanism operating behind the scenes enters into public mind and public discourse from this particular speech. Right. And I think that's fascinating. But I'm also confused because this is the same president that apparently made secretive deals with off-world, off-world entities about the United States citizenry <laughs> and allowed us to have, you know, technology in order for an exchange on on access to technology these beings would be allowed to do certain things with our citizens like abductions and things with you know cattle mutilation other sorts of things but it would also give the united states a tremendous tremendous advantage when it came to technology Mm -hmm. particularly military right and then shortly after this the next president which is truman is the one under which Operation Paperclip occurs. Interesting. Okay. And we can't forget the fact that Eisenhower was a military man all the way through. Uh-huh. So it's it's a weird thing. I'm like, are you warning or are you just playing a part? Right. Like even just like without that context, he opens up and says that we need a military industrial complex. Right. But we need and to- he's a military man. Right. But we need to be warned about it and only an alert public. And we can't take anything for granted. And I'm like, so what are you really telling us here? 
Exactly. It was confusing. And then he drops in even spiritual. Yeah. I was like, I didn't, I didn't. Oh, that's right. These are like 19. Um, I'm trying to place Eisenhower. Is that 1950s? Um, Operation Paperclip was 1945, 47. So yeah, he's so be it would have been before that. that. Yeah. Early 40s. Uh, I guess they were talking spiritual still openly and publicly. But right. it's kind of weird nowadays from, you know, what, 70, 80, 90 years later mm-hmm. to hear a president talk about spiritual. Right, right. Doesn't give either side of the spiritual spectrum, but still just mentions it in a, in a topological fashion. I'm like, yo, that's a little strange. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder almost if it's boasting, right? Like, because he, he makes the point that if you don't have um, a learned and alert citizenry, then this will definitely happen. And then shortly after this, we see all of the um, changes to dumb us down. Right. So it's like the last of you that are alert can can heed my warning, but the rest of you are going to be too dumb to do anything about it. You know, there's that, or there might even be the thing of having to tell the people what's going to happen. Mm, yeah. Revelation of the method. You're right. Exactly. We did warn you. I told you don't, don't, don't let this happen. And you let it happen. You know, that's a good point. That's a good point. But uh, the the last thing I want to mention in trying to decide the book's authenticity or how to like the contextual framework to put around this book, because we know mm-hmm. that our contextual framework informs uh, our perceptive field. Um, what you're is, not going to do is quote Spears. Spears. <laughs> All right. That's, that's what's not going to happen. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But uh, even the people that think that the book is satire are no longer laughing about the concepts that are in it. So Victor Novansky, he actually claims that he was the one that asked Lewin to write the book. And in the okay. the, the republication, I think it was 96, that they um, reprinted the book. It's the, it's the copy that we have, the copies that we okay. have. Uh, he has this really, really long introduction about how just, you know, uh, right-wing extremist and conspiracy theorist are the only one that thinks this book has any legitimacy. And I was like, I was reading through the, the introduction and I'm like, good grief. What, what, what's the statement? I think thou doth protest too much, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Then it gets all the way down to his last statement in the introduction. And he says, but the sad truth may be that the jargonized prose, worst case scenario thinking and military value laden assumptions that Lewin so artfully skewers are still with us. And if that's true, the joke is not on the Michigan and other militias. It is on the rest of us. And it's no longer so funny. And I was like, okay, so. So even the guy that says that it's all completely fake and he asked Lewin to write it is like, this stuff is way, way too accurate. And we're still dealing with all of this stuff today. This isn't a funny joke anymore. Does the bomb work? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they're like screwing in the fuse on this fake bomb and you hear it go click, <laughs> you go, click, what's click? <laughs> I thought this was a game. Wait, is this real? <laughs> right. I thought this was fake. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That bomb is armed. That's funny. That's funny. So yeah, now now let's get into the to the meat of the book, right? Okay. So it it talks about the nature of war. The, this is a, a quote I took from the book. It says, "War is not, as it is widely assumed, pr- 
primarily an instrument of policy utilized by nations to extend or defend their expressed political values or their economic interest. On the contrary, it is itself the principal basis of organization on which all modern societies are constructed. Whoa, 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 whoa. Say that again? Yes. War, on the contrary, it is itself the principal basis of organization on which all modern societies are constructed. Dude, Dude, that alone. Right. I know you haven't finished the quote, but that's crazy. (laughs) No, it is. And I mean, that's in the beginning of the book. So instantly my brain is just running at 100% the whole time. He says, the common proximate cause of war is the apparent interference of one nation with the aspirations of another. But at the root of all ostensible differences of national interest lie the dynamic requirements of the war system itself for periodic armed conflict. Readiness for war characterizes contemporary social systems more broadly than their economic and political structures, which it subsumes. Interesting, right? I'm trying to absorb it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big, heavy concept. Now, the whole idea of war being the fundamental pillar of society, I found so interesting. Okay, why? Okay, so if the different nations, you know, taking the 30,000 foot view, not just the, the American or Western or even current, you know, pulling all the way back and going, okay, can this really be a thing? Mm-hmm. If the different nations that are in existence today are the result of God's judgment on Babel, right? The different language, the different people groups, the disbursement. Then after Babel, since that point, they have been jockeying for position, right? The, principali- the principalities, the sons of God that were put in position over the different nations have been battling amongst themselves really to see who will arise as the predominant nation. You know, the one eligible to, to head up the new world order and usher in the Antichrist. Okay. Because if that had been previously decided, there'd be no need for war since Babel. But clearly because they're battling, you know, I, I would say that it's a pretty high position that under your rulership, the Antichrist comes in, right? Yeah. So if that's really what's been going on, then we can rightfully agree with the conclusion of the report from Iron Mountain that... It is on the machine of war that our contemporary societies are built. Okay. Interesting, right? I see where you're going. Like it, you got to let that sink in for a minute because it's it's a it's a huge idea. It's a real heady notion because you, you like you said you you've really got to measure full out from Tower of Babel forward all of these nations. And right. I, I think the other thing is if you're dealing with a not just a geopolitical entity. But if you're dealing with a, with a metaphysical or spiritual kingdom that births a geopolitical entity and that mm-hmm. metaphysical kingdom runs on the idea of evolutionary thinking, then survival of the fittest would have to be a mantra of the kingdom. And that would breed conflict and war. Right. Right. Hence that saying nature is red with tooth and claw. It's all Uh about fighting and infighting. Because, of course, you can't have a creator that endues you with specific gift sets and a purpose. (laughs) You can't have that. So in order to prove your value and worth, you can't have transcendent value, worth and purpose. So it can't be, okay. you're supposed to do this and you're supposed you're gifted to do that. No, you have to prove yourself. 
Right, it's a giant competition. Mm. We already had that conversation about competition. <laughs> we did, we did. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely right. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah, fascinating. Sorry, my brain is still like trying to put all the pieces together because there's so much information. Yeah, and I felt like I hijacked your train of thought. No, it's, it's all right. You you just added to it. You didn't hijack it. We're just bogged down right, a little cool. bit. That's all that happened. <laughs> but literally, the satanic plot against the Almighty has been the central idea of every emerging nation. That's what? insane, right? Not a God-fearing nation. Not a, not a Christian nation. What do you mean? Well, you said the central idea of every emerging nation. So I know on the national stage, there is one nation that purports itself to be a Christian nation. This, this can't apply to that. Not, 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 you know, the land of the free, the home of the brave. Not the nation that stands as a shining beacon to give hope to the world. <laughs> Especially America. Oh, no, sir. I mean, was it was it not the Revolutionary War that established us as a nation? Let's not squabble over details. We had a small <laughs> disagreement with an impressive force from across the pond that we needed to settle. We tried sending them paperwork first. Okay, we tried a diplomatic way. They didn't want to hear it. They came over here bumping chests and stuff. And next thing you know, we had to go fisticuffs. It was not our fault. We are a very peaceful nation. <laughs> Where? You, you see how we got along with the indigenous population? Right. We didn't do anything crazy with them. We didn't have them walking for miles. Or crying about it either. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. We didn't tell them to pack up and move shop. <laughs> we didn't kill off their food supply. In order to make sure that they got in line, we didn't manage that. We didn't build a population off of the backs of indentured servants and then trafficked in human slaves. Right. We did not. Do, we are a peaceful, fun loving nation. You can see uh, that by <laughs> all of the wonderful people that we put on our principal buildings. You know, these yeah. wonderful guys and, you know, gods and goddesses. Let's not quibble and quabble. Is it, right. Are, we don't need to go folks. into specifics or anything like that. <laughs> no, no. So when you say every nation, I understand you mean the ones over there. But not you know, this British one. Isles, French, Germany, you know, all the ones over there in the African plains, even the ones on the back end of the world, like in Australia. We understand you mean maybe in the Pacific region, you know, the Japanese, the Chinese, all of that. They fight a lot. You know, they got empirical powers and all of that stuff. They 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 squabble. <laughs> but not us. Not our nation. For sure. And of course, we didn't even mention the folk in the southern region. They never get talked about in South America. And they, they weren't worrying. They were fun-loving, <laughs> non-human sacrificing group of people. Right. Uh, super cuddly. So you mean those folk. <laughs> exactly. But no, yeah, I, I think I think we definitely have some grounds to make that claim. Now, I think there could be an argument made for the nation of Israel. All right. How so? Well, I'm just saying because... Because um, God specifically instituted them, so there there would be some variable differences from them versus the nations that came out of the the warring collapse of Babel. But as we know, they were built for war as well. So, just as a point of clarification, when you say nation of Israel, are are, are we talking 
coming from the, the, the biblical ancient Hebrews, or are we talking about 19, what is it, 47? 48. Nation of, the current no, I'm talking about Hebrew culture, like traditional okay. Hebrew okay. culture. I got you. So I, okay. I'm, gotcha. I'm still going to make the argument that because of what they were actually used for and designed for, that war was a pinnacle part of their establishment. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna die on that hill. I'm just saying there, there is room for a discussion about that. You know, when I say every nation, the central idea is, you know, the satanic plot against the almighty, but this also yes. means that the church, you know, as God intended, not the Western abomination would be the antithesis of a war-based government. That is another powerhouse. It is. It is. Like you were just dropping these. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. But we we make the mistake um, that we have created various aspects of society, right? Like currency, trade, war, and government, and all of that. Right. But the fact of the matter is that all of these things predate humanity, right? They're pre-Adamaic ideas. Yes. So we're functioning under and mirroring different aspects of celestial institutions, so although many governments use war as a foundation, I don't believe that the kingdom of God is based on war. I think it's based on love and relationship. Now it sounds kind of hokey. You know what it I mean? It does. It does. Yeah, I always wanted to go, eh. Right. Anytime I say love, you're going to throw up over there. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit that's in the back of my throat there. Right. But so God's kingdom can make war. You know, don't get it twisted, but I don't think the foundation of the kingdom of heaven is on chaos and competition, right? You know, I, I, when you first pitched that idea to me, I, I took exception to it a little bit. Okay. And I still been I wrestled with it a little bit more. I was going through the notes t- today and saw it again, and I started re-wrestling with it. But one of the, the ideas that came to mind is, you know, Scripture talks about, I think it's in Revelation, where they beat their swords into plowshares, you know, where there's, there's no longer conflict. Okay. Where once Satan and the, the beast and the false prophet and those who have rejected the offer of salvation, you know, Christ's free will offer of salvation. Once they are all judged and dealt with the remaining populace is no longer at war, nor is there a need for war. Right. Right. And I was like, well, I guess Christopher's got a point mm-hmm. because while you have an angels like or, or celestial beings like Michael, who's, who's, who's recognized in scripture as an archangel and the protector of not just Israel, but those who profess allegiance to, to the lamb, him being a principal being, he actually engages in war. Like he's the one that gave aid to Gabriel when Gabriel was confined in conflict trying to get God's message from heaven to Daniel. Right. right? Mm-hmm. He had to, he had to lend backup and come in like war machine. Right. He's right. also <laughs> the one who snatched up the dragon and threw him down and out of heaven, mm-hmm. which means he's a bad boy. What happens when there's no more conflict? Like, is, was that his only purpose? There's no way. I, I'd have purpose. to conclude. No. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which then pushes me to the point. While God's kingdom definitely can make war it's not founded upon it because the kingdom is an extension of the divine relationship that exists within the godhead 
Exactly. And if it was founded on war, then that would mean the entities that make up the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit would have to have been in conflict with one another. And scripture expressly teaches that is not the case. They were one. It is why it says your God, Israel, is one God. Right. Not that it's not three distinct persons, but in essence, they are so tied in unity that they function as one. Right. So war and conflict cannot be a component of the divine relationship. And it is from their relationship that the very concept of relationship is measured out to the cosmos. The only reason that that organisms that are created have relationship with one another is because it reflects the nature of relationship that exists within the Godhead. And they are not at war. So, of course, I thought myself into a corner <laughs> that I had to walk out of and go, Christopher's right. Dang, that. <laughs> wow, that He's rarely right. happens. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it happens way more frequently than you think. Oh, you just don't tell me? <laughs> well, I'm not stupid. I was born at night, just not last night. Oh, uh, that's funny. But yeah, so if that's the case, it gives the church such a powerful separation from any other contemporary society or culture. At its most basic and fundamental structure, the church is designed to be set in direct opposition to the rest of the world. The church is built around Jesus' sacrifice and the, if I use agape, does that sound any better? It, it actually does. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. it sounds better. So Jesus' sacrifice and the agape we have for our fellow man. And it might possibly be the first post-Diluvian culture built on agape. Now, again, don't get it twisted. We are at war and the church must do war and do it well, but it's not the basis for the governmental structure. That's still phenomenal, man. It, it makes Jesus' statement that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence so much more interesting. Oh, it does. Right. I mean, yes, it measures that out violence, but it it suffers it. It, it has to endure it. Not that it runs on it. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This is a super crazy idea. Right. It, it, it does. So this is where it gets uh, even more interesting. <laughs> Lucifer no longer being a citizen of that government, right? The Prince of Peace, the perfect relationship of the Godhead. He's, he's no longer a citizen of that, right? Okay. So this produces a huge problem if he wants to actually run a unified world order. Even he knows that a house divided against itself can't stand. So how in the world does a war-driven agent of chaos like Lucifer support a peacetime? Force. What do you do with that? Well, yeah, but th this, this concept in, in the systems, the specific systems and how they work is exactly what the report from Iron Mountain sets out to answer. Okay. Interesting, right? Yeah, that silence there was me thinking. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, yeah, okay. that's a lot to, to figure out. Because part of my mind was going, okay, wait a minute. You know, when you, you, you read in scripture, Lucifer gets kicked out because of, you know, the corruption of his character based on the violence of his commerce and trading, right? Uh-huh. And he, he got uplifted by the splendor of his beauty. Like, I'm like, that doesn't give me a time frame. Like, did you walk past the mirror one time? It's like, oh, oh, Lord. 
Oh, I can't praise him. Oh, me. <laughs> Boy, you, know, you know you looking right. Yes, I am. Man, you have evolved into something dope. Thank you. You know, did that happen or did he sit down and and start thinking this stuff out? Not just, oh, I'm fly. But you know what? I could be like the most high. Well, what does that entail? You know, because I think I could do a better job. Well, well how would you maintain order? Psh, order, smarter. Let me tell you how I maintain order. I'm put these hoes in check. I, I don't know what the ancient proto-Hebraic term for hoes is, but I'm sure that's what he was mentioning <laughs> when he was talking about all the celestial beings. We don't put them in check because originally they're in check based on free will submission under Yahweh and worship of Yahweh, right? Mm-hmm. But if he's going to replace that, then it has to be in worship of me. And for anyone that won't get in line, cut off his head, you know, death to him, put them under extreme force and, 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 and uh, distress until they comply. And if they don't want to comply, kill them. Right. That seems to solve the issue of peace. But I'm sitting here going, so you really thought all of that out? Like, how do we do this really? That's a that's a mind-blowing idea. To really think about all the stuff that the enemy would have to account for to pull off, you know, this this plan of his. Like it, right. I don't think right. it was just a I don't I don't think it was a uh, an impulsive idea. Like on one day, Lucifer just got a burp is behind of, I really want to be in charge. Right. Right. But he had to plan, like think this through plot. You know, that took time. You know, he was in the almighty's face talking about, yes, hallelujah, praise you, Lord. You are most high. You know, if I hit him upside the head, do you think I could take over the throne? Right. Nah, I probably couldn't do that yet. No, God, you are most high. Yes. Well, we love you. Love you much. Love you long time. Yes. <laughs> Did it go far left? Far left. I can't like my brain is just stuck in a loop. Like it has to resolve. It's like, no, we can't do that. Can't. Nope. No. Uh, that's amazing. You will never look at me. Love you long time. <laughs> Ever same. again. Right. Oh, that is so funny. You'll never look at the movie Tommy Boy the same. You'll see Lucifer plotting on God. But really, to be in God's face and creating all of these plans before he got uh, thrown out of heaven is a wild notion. And -hmm. to think he's even trying to figure out how do I ensure or enforce peace. And I think you're spot on. I think the report from Iron Mountain, even if it is a satire or, or a um, a parody, is probably still dancing on a lot of truth. Right. And giving right. insight into a Luciferian idea. And it, I don't know, this, this, this might be tangential and there might not be any grounds here, but the report highlights five different benefits of war or benefits that war offers society, right? Okay. And isn't the, isn't there five I wills of Satan? There are. I wonder if there's any yeah. connection. Now they seem like in, in I the, haven't traced that out. Right. In the translation, you know, raise your throne to the heights of the north. And like I wonder what those things actually mean though. You know, because our, our Western ear is like, okay, you want to fly around in the clouds and then 
be like the most high. I don't know what that means, but it would be interesting if they had parallels to the five benefits war offers society. That'd be interesting. That is fascinating, man. So the uh, report from Iron Mountain says that the benefits of war are economic, political, sociological, ecological, and cultural and scientific. So we'll get into these. I'll read uh, little snippets from the book and then we'll discuss what it actually means and then how I see those things uh, coming to fruition today a little okay. bit. You ready? Yeah, it was roll. All right. So economic. Lewin says war has provided both ancient and modern societies with a dependable system for stabilizing and controlling national economies. No alternate method of control has yet been tested in a complex modern economy that has shown itself remotely comparable in scope or effectiveness. So the report in the book, it explains that war functions as a separate type of buffer economy, like the the military industrial complex, to the privatized civilian economy. So it's because of that, it's immune to, to booms and busts. And the military economy is under complete control of the government. So they, they dictate all of that. War stimulates growth and production and the wastefulness of war serves to consume the stagnated unused inventory of the civilian economic system. So the moment mankind, like if you look at a, at a progressive like hunter-gatherer um, Viewpoint: The moment mankind moved from hunter-gatherers to groups that were able to hoard supplies in one place marked the beginning of, quote-unquote, civilized societies. But with this this grouping of resources, it also created the haves and the have-nots. Got you. The natural outpouring of that is, in humanity's sinful state, is war. You know— So that's that whole, I want that. Right, exactly. And then— Like Russia and Crimea. (laughs) Right. And the, the wastefulness of war, because it is wasteful, it actually serves to utilize the unused storehouses of those that have. Because typically you're, you're storing more than you need. So instead of it just going bad, war functions as a almost the, – the book explains it kind of like a, a purifying agent, right? It keeps things moving and consumes the excess. Okay. So if war – If war is so successful in these economic structures, the question is, what would be necessary as an equivalent replacement? Because they need more than just, I think they need more than just a system. I think they actually require a conditioning or brainwashing of public thinking. So this is where overproduction comes in. And you had a, um, you gave me a quote from uh, the book Weapons of Mass Mass Instruction by John Taylor Gatto, right? Yeah. And this is crazy because I think this is an excellent response or answer to the issue raised in the report from Iron Mountain. So Gatto says, in essence, to overproduce is to make more goods and services for sale than there are customers for those things. The common population was still insufficiently conditioned to be interdependent and specialized. So because of this, this is my interjection here, sorry. Because of this, there had to be an overhaul of the education system to properly change the mode of thinking for the average American citizen, right? Yep. So Gatto says, under this outlook, the classroom would never be used to produce knowledge, but only to consume it. 
it would not encourage the confined to produce ideas only to consume the ideas of others. The ultimate goal implanted in student minds, which replaced the earlier goal of independent livelihoods, was getting a better job. This would lead to the consumerism and huge profits for big business, which influenced the educational curriculum even to this day. So that over is crazy. It is. It really is. And it might seem like this this idea that I don't know, you know, like an economic idea that doesn't seem to have much bearing on our day to day. But I think that nothing could be further from the truth, because the notion would be if you own your own business and you're in it only to make as much profit as you can, then you want to produce as much product as you can to get it sold. Right. That right. That that produces your profit. But mm-hmm. if you produce product at your maximum capacity, there may not be enough customers to buy your product and you would have mm-hmm. produced more than you could possibly sell. Or there may be an, there may be there may not be enough customers that need your product. That's right. a unique distinction. Yes. There are probably less customers that need it than there are customers that are available to buy it. Mm hmm. But if you can, if you can obscure that distinction and somehow make the need for the profit or the need for the the product equal to the amount of customers there are, then you can maximize your production. You can maximize your profits. The problem mm-hmm. is you have to get people into a mindset of buy, 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 buy. Right, right. Buy it even if you don't need it. Just buy it, because if you buy it, then I make money and I maximize my profit. Well, in order to get people into a mindset of buy, 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 you have to change the root operating system that humanity was designed to function on, which is produce, Mm -hmm. not consume alone. Be a producer and produce within complementary relationship to those that consume don't exploit don't produce maximum produce what's necessary it goes back to the concept of god would tell like the children of israel you need to let the land rest Mm -hmm. every so many years i think it's like once every seven years yeah yeah the land has to rest well why that's a time that the land can't produce and i need it to produce (laughs) yep Yep. I need to extract maximum profit out of this 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 parcel of land. That's not the way God's system is set up. It's set up on proper relationship. You don't abuse the land. You don't misuse it. You don't exploit it for what it can do for you. You have to live in proper relationship to the world around you because you're supposed to be reflective of the God that created you. Right. Right. But if you take on this Luciferian idea of profits, well, First, it's going to be evolutionary back, so survival of the fittest. And mm-hmm. since we are at the top, we're more fit than those beneath us. So because they're not as smart as us, we can take advantage of them, and it's okay, because if they were smarter, they take advantage of us. And so since we're going to take advantage of them, and we're in business, the purpose of business is to not serve people, is to make money. So now I want to make as much of it as I can, even if I have to exploit the rules of good good genuine relationship and so 
you can do that maybe with one or two generations. How do you create a perpetual system of this? You have to teach people to consume. This is where it gets really diabolical because you go then into the educational system and you start at a fundamental level teaching the art of consumption by way of stifling creativity because creativity actually yields to producing ideas, not mm-hmm. just consuming them. Right. Right. So you stop at, you stop students from being able to, to, to learn in a certain way that would produce new ideas because new ideas would threaten old business practices. Right. Right. You, you, you know what, you know what I mean? Like if you've, if you've created a business that revolves around dog sleds and dogs pulling sleds, you don't want somebody coming up with a combustible engine and working with somebody that has a wheel. Right. Right. That's going to throw your whole business model out of whack. And then Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to get profits. So you teach students how to work in a confined mental space and not to think creatively. You even take disciplines that promote creativity out of the educational curriculum, such as the arts. Yep. What do you What do you need to learn how to paint for? What do you What do you need to learn music for? You don't need to learn this stuff. Not to mention the fact that all of this dances on the whole trivium quadrivium, right? Yeah, and throws out how people see the relation their re, their relationship to reality and how they fit within the the spectrum of creation that we've been given. All of that said, it leads then to consumerism. Right. This is how we have the society we have now of of consume, 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 consume. Mm -hmm. This is how you get there. I was blown away when he put it in his book because he didn't tie it all together like that. But as soon as I read it, my mind blew up. Right. Right. And as soon as you. And I was like, that's crazy. As soon as you establish consumerism, then all of the consumers are dependent on the system. Exactly. And this does exactly, I think this accomplishes exactly or fulfills the issue that the book shows of war being, you know, the the waste of war consumes the extra. Well, instead of having a war, we'll just make every individual person a consumer and they can take on that. And it even, I mean, it ideologically impacts the way that we view relationships or, you know, I'm... I've seen the the quote all the time on social media, you know, that uh, how did you make it 70 years without getting a divorce? And he's like, well, the generation that I come from, if if something breaks, you fix it, you don't buy a new one. Wow. Yeah. So this consumerist idea that if it, if it breaks, just buy a new one, buy a new one, buy a new one, has impacted our relationship with other people as well. Eh, if it's not working, you get a new one. You just get a new one. It's crazy. It is. I'm watching DuckTales the other day and the green one is is probably the most laziest one of out of the triplets. Okay. And he loves his great uncle's money. Right? He is the he is the person that is the most endued with this idea of wastefulness. Okay. Like he'll order a pop from the butler. And I, I said order. He'll order a pot from the butler, crack it open and sip just the beginning part and then put the, the pop down and order another one. And like Scrooge walks in, he's like, what are you doing? He was like, it's that first sip, that bubbly goodness that I love. And he orders another one just for that first sip. The rest of it's going, sitting on the couch, wasted. 
Wow. He wants to go get his phone. His uncle's like, you know, Scrooge is like, use your phone to do something. And he's like, it's so far away. And he goes to reach for it. And by reach, I mean he's laying on the couch in a reclined position and just stretches his arm out and can't reach it. He doesn't move over. He just stretches it and goes, oh, I can't really get it. Touches it and it falls on the ground. And he goes, well, that's the old one. I might as well, It's only three months old, but we might as well order a new one. I'm rich. <laughs> and Scrooge goes, no, I'm rich. You're poor. You don't have any money. I do. That's funny. But it's 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 so fascinating, the difference. Like, Scrooge had to work for his money. Uh-huh. Very, very, very fickle. Very, very, very uh, close fist when it comes to how he wants to spend his money. Whereas two generations later, two, just two, because mm-hmm. these are Donald's nephews. Okay. Huey, Dewey, and Louie, you got the green one talking about, I'm rich, man. I, I just need to order a pop so I could take the first sip because that's where it hits. <laughs> and this phone is three months old, so it's probably outdated. I need to get a new one anyway. Matter of fact, I should probably remodel this whole house because I'm, I'm having to do too much movement, turning my neck from side to side. <laughs> that is like pure consumerism. And I'm like, why is this in DuckTales? Yeah. Because it reflects really where our culture is at right now. Yeah. It does. It does. And it, it, it's wild. It's so crazy as, as I was going through this book to see all of these, well, without war, how are we going to do this? And so much of those things are happening and being tested in the day that we live now. Like that was so unsettling to me. What do you mean? Well, just like over overproduction. Okay. Like we see all of these systems being specifically enacted that seem to meet the um, the need of replacing war the exact way it's laid out in the report from Iron Mountain. Gotcha. That's crazy. Gotcha. So once the economics issue was settled, then we move to political, right? Okay. So Lewin writes, the permanent possibility of war is the foundation for stable government. It supplies the basis for general acceptance of political authority. It has enabled societies to maintain necessary class distinctions, and it has ensured the subordination of the citizen to the state. By virtue of the residual war powers inherent in the concept of nationhood, no modern political ruling group has successfully controlled its constituency after failing to sustain the continuing credibility of an external threat of war. Okay, that's wild. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if you had to translate that, essentially it means if we remove the threat of the boogeyman, uh-huh. we'd be out of business. Like, you guys wouldn't even listen to us. Exactly. The only reason you listen to us is because there's a threat that you don't have the ability to handle that we tell you we've got the ability to handle. Right. Chuck Missler even talked about this, that the way a government is set up is they— in the event of of peace or if there's no conflict, then they have to try and justify why they're there. So they benefit from domestic issues and war and um, moral decadence in a society because it justifies their position and allows them to take more control. I remember that. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. Yeah. So the book tells us that the the primary functions of war are that of, at least from a political perspective, perspective, are that of organization. 
Part of the organization of a nation is developing your attitude towards other nations, right? Like we have to know who we are and we have to know what the other nations are and why we're different. They're savages. Well, there you go. You know, and and so it'd be uh, national sovereignty, foreign policy, those types of things is actually organizing the thoughts of the citizens. And the current or near current organizations have relied almost solely on war. Our allies and our current enemies all hinge on the threat of war. Did you know, I think we mentioned this before, or I've talked to you about it, that even the classification of first, second, and third world countries isn't based on technological conditions, but wartime allegiances. So if we're talking about war- I remember that. Yeah, so if we're talking about war offers a way to structure the politics of a nation, war actually helped struggle- Helped to um, wow! I don't know what word I was trying to say. Structure. Oh, I'm I'm listening curiously. <laughs> War helped to structure. Yeah, you structure had a couple too many G's in there. <laughs> the the classification of the entire world, right? Because we've heard of third world yeah. countries, but mm-hmm. did we know there's a there's actually a first and second world? So this came out of World War One. The first world nations included America and her allies. The second world okay. nation included the Soviet Union and her allies, while the third world nations consisted of those without any wartime allegiances. So most of the third world nations um, had no allegiance because they had no formidable military or technology to add to the war. But it wasn't their technological state that gave them this distinction. It was based off of their wartime allegiance. I always thought that stuff was... It was economically based. It's not. You know, if you were third world, you were poor. If you were second world, you you were you were on your way to being first world, and first world is 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 rich. What's crazy to me is if what you're saying is accurate, mm-hmm. which I mean, I assume it is. But can, uh, let's take it that that it's a hundred percent on. Then there's been a a new psyop introduced to humanity that reclassifies this or cloaks it. Because uh-huh. we no longer, I won't say we no longer, for the most part, we use different terminology to express the same thing, but it builds on this deception because we we normally don't say third world now or second world or first world. Now we have developing countries. Okay. Second world is developing. First world is developed. And the third world will be underdeveloped. Right, right. But you would not, again, that puts it into an economic context. Mm-hmm. Right. Not a wartime allegiance context. Mm-hmm. So if if a country or not even a country, if an organization like, I don't know, let's say World Bank is making loans to an underdeveloped country so that it can boost its economy to become a developing nation in the hopes that it becomes a developed nation, you have to retranslate that based on what you just said into wartime rhetoric. Right. Uh Uh-huh. So now the World Bank would make a loan to a country that has no war affiliations so that it could be swayed into one of two affiliations. Right. Either the second tier, which would be developing. Those will be those that serve the war pact or the the Eastern Bloc. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the first world or developed which will be America or NATO countries. 
Right. It's a cloak and dagger type deal because it completely changes the rhetoric, which which changes your mindset about it. And you have no idea what they're really saying to you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, 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 and news, you know, President Biden was going through the Eastern Bloc and had a GN summit meeting where they met with members of the World Economic Forum and the World Bank. And it was determined that they would start making loans to underdeveloped countries in an effort to help build what's going on over there. And, and, and Russia, this is my reporter voice. Gotcha. And you're like, wait, you're doing what? Oh, that sounds great. You're just making some economic moves. You're trying to help the less fortunate out. That's good. Good country. Good move, Biden. Way to <laughs> United States. And in the meantime, you're positioning pawns on the global stage for war. Right. Yeah, that's exactly Mind what it is. Mind is blown right <laughs> now, dude. Yeah, and it's crazy to me that if, if we take the order of importance, that being neutral makes you less important than being the enemy. Right, right. It's crazy. It is. Like, you, you're going to join. It's like being caught between the Bloods and the Crips. Right, right. Either one is like, no, you don't get to stick this fight out. You're going to join sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Lewin continues in the book. He says, the basic authority of a modern state over its people resides in its war powers. There is, in fact, good reason to believe that codified law had its origins in the rules of conduct established by military victors for dealing with the defeated enemy, which were later adapted to apply to all subjected populations. On a day-to-day basis, it is represented by the institution of police, armed organization, charged expressly with dealing with internal enemies in a military manner. Okay, now that is provocative. Right? Like, like I, I, I mean, <laughs> okay, look, bro, I know we still got more to get through, but like, yeah. you, you know, you almost can't even touch this because you, you've already got the thing in place of back the blue. Uh-huh. Right. Right. So, so it's, it's, um, it, it is taboo for you to even touch this idea. Right. And I'm not right. speaking against people that are in law enforcement. People put their lives on the line to make sure that, you know, they can help citizens and, and serve their fellow man better. Definitely applaud those efforts. But this is dealing with your stuff at a at a 10,000 foot view. Right. Exactly. You know, this is dealing with it at, from a systemic level for things that even predate us. Many times we the day to day person gets folded in, especially again, you can't if you went through an educational system. You got programmed, get a good job. You go into an institution to get a good job without necessarily being afforded the benefit of understanding the ideological roots for that institution and how or why it was put into play from a systemic level. And then we form these opinions about it and we're very, very staunch about how we express those opinions. You know, you won't talk about the police, but if you read it, if you really understood what what if a person really understood what you just said based on military conquests at a at a national level people who were conquered were often put under legal systems that mm-hmm. reflected the interest of the conquering power or the conquering state and then to further institute those interests policing agencies are set up in order to take care of the day-to-day issues and right. the police represent an armed organization 
charged expressly with dealing with quote unquote internal enemies, criminals, uprisers, sympathizers, depending on the type of political state you're in. Because sometimes police do deal with people that are sympathizers to the opposing national view. Mm -hmm. You know, we're like in a communist state where you can't talk about things that go against the official narrative. Right. And so it's not just about serving the public. It also becomes about enforcing political positions and political rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And it's done so. Here's the catcher. Like you said, it's done so in a military manner. What do you think about SWAT, special weapons and tactics? Mm -hmm. No, not just dealing with threats and in a physical threats, but also building. Because a lot of people that are on SWAT come from military service. Okay, and so they bring the training as far as weapons and tactics into that organization to understand how do you deal with certain threats. But not all threats are physical. Some threats are psychological. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And so if you move departments, you know, hey, you know, something we learned when we were doing some military service over here, blah, blah, blah. We can invoke some of these changes and how you deal with crowd control. This goes back to Tavistock. Yeah. Yeah. Tavistock Institute. This is how they train that into a society. This is how you introduce social control. Once again, mine <laughs> is blown. Right. Right. And here, here's a side note for somebody who was like, well, how do you have a nation without a police force then? Well, the original Israelites, you know, the nation set up by God, they didn't have a police force, nor did they have a prison system. So this idea that the internal authority of a nation is solely based on uh, warlike institutions such as a police force is only accurate as it relates to pagan Luciferian-based political structures. Okay, well then how did ancient Israelites deal with uprisers? How did they deal with violators and criminals? <sighs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, it's all right. Well, I just, so there's so much like law rhetoric is, is running through my brain all of a sudden. I wasn't expecting that box to be open. But they did have the priest class that had um, the um, executive authority, Right. But a lot of the the necessary, um, like, uh, what would it be? Like enforcement came from the other people, right? So if, uh, just say in the event of murder, then the, the next of kin had the right under the authority of the priest based on the law that he was the one that did the execution, right? Okay. So that that changes a lot of things. You know, because it makes the individuals more responsible. Like we go, yeah, we have to have justice. Cool, have justice. You have to kill them. Ah, do we want justice that bad that now you want blood on your hands? Like it really changes the whole interaction there. And then a lot of people complain about the the intensity of some of the punishments, like death for, mm-hmm. for so many different things. But this this did away with having to have a prison system. You either dealt with it and then you were able to go back into society or you had to pay the price of death. And there's there's no middle ground, unlike the thousands of levels of middle ground that we have now for, you know, how many life sentences or just spend a weekend in jail or whatever. It was a, It's an interesting institution and we complain a yeah. lot from a, a pagan view of politics and policy, 
but they didn't have a police force and they didn't have a prison system and they were still a functioning nation. That on its uh, by itself is incredible. Absolutely. Now I'm thinking, well, what do you do past that? What do you mean? You know, if you don't, if you, well, a policing system that functions off of military, uh, what was a military like uh, tactics in, in a military manner? Uh huh. If you didn't have an internal policing system, what about a policing system on a national level? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure what you're asking me. Well, essentially, my question is, if the nation of Israel was able to function properly without having a policing system at a, let's say, a, a domestic level, mm-hmm. a neighborhood level, then can that same principle be extrapolated higher up the organizational structure or organization hierarchy? So no police at a at a neighborhood level or community level. OK, what about no police at a state level? What about no police at a federal level? Because essentially all that the children of Israel had or the nation of Israel had was a military. Right. And it seemed like when we were dealing with big order policing agencies, not just at a local level, but we were dealing at a, you know, a tribal level or a national level, they were appealing to the priest class and actually was God instituting judgments. Right. Right. Okay. They maintain a military in order to deal with external um, issues and forces coming against them. But that was even tied to to the power of God. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a military force that existed solely on its own strength. Right, right. So it really throws this idea of policing completely upside down on its head. It does. Because in, in the West, here, yeah, here in America, we have several, several layers of policing. Mm-hmm. Not just local, we have state police, we've got county police, we've got federal police, we've got a lot of policing agencies. Uh-huh. Like it's it's wild how many different overlapping jurisdictions and overlapping um hierarchical layers of policing we have in this country. And we probably only think of it from a local level. You know, like I I know my guy down the street who's a police officer. Right. Right. That's probably about as far as we take it. Mm-hmm. And we don't we're not looking at the full system. And the implications of what you just said across a full system. Right, right. And it it, 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 get, it gets a little crazier because, uh, you know, Lewin says that it's the internal military power also helps ensure proper class distinctions between citizens. Well, that seems beneficial when you want to introduce political control. Right, right. And then even, I mean... <laughs> I would I would say that the police force in America is a different class of person because look even killing a police officer holds higher penalties right than killing a regular person. You can't even kill a police dog, right? So it, it's interesting that there there are these these very hard and fast lines drawn for class distinction. In places that we we might not actually be looking. So the question is, with war being the pinnacle point for organization and class distinction, how do we handle this in a peacetime society? Well, I think one, one way that we see this being enacted or tested out is in China, right? They've got some pretty good tactics for this. So a vast majority of their propaganda is that is directed at their citizens is actually based on public shaming 
and public acceptance. So in, in, yeah. in, instead of listing, you know, the fines for littering, like we do in America, $5,000 fine for littering here, they post signs that say everyone hates- 5000 Well, I don't know what it is. $500 was, for littering. I think it's 500 I was like, okay. man, what are they doing over there where you live? <laughs> no, in China, it's it says everyone hates a litter bug. And I recently saw Ooh. a post. Yeah. Everyone's going to hate you if you do this. So that's the whole idea of, of mass control. They probably have your picture up on a digital billboard. Well, they, they, they do literally they, they do for jaywalking. They have yeah, cameras set up that. that if you, yeah, if you jaywalk, it'll take a picture and then post you up on public screens, you know, pointing fingers at you. Look, you're doing the thing yeah. that, that we don't accept. So that's China. But here in America, I think we saw a similar thing happen during the pandemic. There was a. <laughs> don't, 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 don't you talk about that. And it's it's so it's crazy to me because this book talks about needing to test these institutions in a complex environment. So it just right. adds so much credibility when we're like, oh, well, COVID was a, a test run. And I'm, maybe I shouldn't have said that because we'll get shadow banned or whatever. So what I heard somebody else say the other day is Charlie One Niner. Charlie One Niner? I like yeah. that. Okay. Me so too. If Charlie One Niner was a test, you know, we hear that said, and then we have this book written in the 60s that says that these things have to be tested before implemented. I'm like, man, this makes a lot of sense. So yeah. here, here in America, we had a standard of behavior set by political mandate. And many of the places really police themselves based off the idea of public acceptance of these decrees, right? Yep. It wasn't all that often that you were faced with a police officer telling you what to do. It was every Karen and whatever the male equivalent to that is, you know, screaming and yelling that you need to do this stuff. It was crazy. And then the and class- though, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Is, it wasn't this the same basic tactic, though, that we saw all over in Germany? under Hitler's administration, the self-reporting, the turning mm -hmm. in your neighbors, the talking to the Gestapo, yep. everybody was an informant. Right, right. And I think that's what we saw happening large scale across the country. Oh, for sure. And then the whole class distinction comes up in that because it, those lawns were drawn healthy and unhealthy. And the only way that you could be healthy was by participating in the government dictates, in this case, taking in toxic, untested substances in yourself. Right. You know, there was even talk of less pay and lack of medical facilities based on your willingness to comply to this authority. That's crazy. People's jobs were, were threatened. Yeah. There, there was a time even where OSHA was, it was like, if you had, what was it, over a thousand employees, I think, mm -hmm. maybe it was more than that. But it was some low number. If you had that many, or if you were a government contractor, you were going to be mandated to to take uh, this the solution. Right, right. And you had no real way out until the court stepped in. Right. It's it's insane. So yeah. so they're they're testing that, but then in the midterm, we see our police forces consistently under attack, and in some cases for good reason, right? But they've been systematically mm -hmm. militarized and threatened. If they don't use the force that's been given them, then they're going to lose it. And I believe that this is partially being done because there's legislation already in place to allow UN peacekeepers 
to come in and act on behalf of the U.S. government in instances that the regular police force is insufficient to meet the social demand. So Let me they're, tell you what they're te- you're not going to do. <laughs> you, all right, you, you're not going to talk about what the good President Obama commissioned with the the UN and the fact that he signed a declaration stating that if the United States has to declare martial law, the United Nations is legally permitted to come into U.S. soil and restore order. Hmm. You're not going to talk about that. You're not going to even hint <laughs> at the fact that there have been reports. You know, we got DOD contacts giving us information and they've confirmed that there is training that happens with other uh, personnel from other countries. Like we have foreign military operatives that we mm-hmm. co-train with and that are on U.S. soil already. Right. You're not going to talk about that. <laughs> we supposed to be focused on the report from Iron Mountain. <laughs> Okay, that's all we're supposed to be talking about here. Right, and it's just a hoax, so there's no reason to bring it up anymore. It's just satire. <laughs> that's all it is. You know, you mentioned a moment ago, bro, about the, the the police actually becoming more of a military unit. I've noticed, even around our home state, that the the police units are starting to look more unified. Are they? Even their paint schemes have begun to change to a black and white scheme, like all black vehicle, white on the side of the, of the vehicle, normally with the name of the agency within the white part of it. Oh, OK, I've noticed that that more cops on the street, more police officers on the street are having tactical gear on the outside of their uniform. Mm-hmm. The uniform used to be a little bit more business like, you know, right. I mean? button up shirt tie. Uh-huh. Now you see the overshirt tack vest. Yep. And yep. other equipment on there. It's a little more intimidating. It is. And I mean, it's not to say as far as the police officers concerned that it's not tactical or tactile for them, you know, it gives access to the tools and stuff they have to carry in a more efficient fashion. I- I'll grant you that. Mm-hmm. But from a visual perspective, it also is more intimidating. Right. Like, what am I dealing right. with? Is this a regular cop or a SWAT officer? What is this? Uh huh. Is this Jim or Sergeant Bilko? Who am I dealing with here? <laughs> That's right. right? And, and I've noticed this across various jurisdictions. It's more unified. Mm-hmm. It's like they're coming together to be more structured. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see exactly what you're talking about. That's crazy. So all that, along with the fact that our armed forces are required to pledge allegiance to the United Nations as well as America, begins Wait, the transition. So one of the issues, Chuck Missler was saying, one of the problems that um, the the military has today is you're no longer just in defense of the Constitution in America, but you are contractually obligated to be in defense of the United Nations as well. And he said okay. on that point alone, he would not want any of his children serving in the armed forces. Okay, so you were, you were talking about pledging allegiance. I went right to the Pledge of Allegiance of the flag. Oh, okay. And then I, I, now, I thought that now they've added some new terminology. <laughs> My bad. I could have I could have phrased nations. that better. I could have phrased that better. That's my fault. But I think I think what this does is it begins to transition into allegiance to a new world order, right? Absolutely. With the systems being tested to ensure class distinctions and subservience to that global nation. And it seems the more we look around at the issues, you know, that uh, the report from Iron Mountain breaks down, the clearer we see that their ideas are being implemented and tested. And this is all coming 
from a, a governmental structure, a Luciferian governmental structure. Because mm. that's that's the <sighs> that's the end goal. All of these things are being implemented because there has to be a one world order. And if it's one world, it has to be ordered. So Satan has to figure out by hook or by crook how to get his governmental institution to not fall apart to usher in the Antichrist. That that's what all this is about. I need to have a sound effect for mind blown. <laughs> we should get one. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm going to have to look for one. But dude, that's crazy. Right? But I think you're 100% right. I, th- I think you are spot on. And being able to pinpoint these things is what's hard for the average person. Right. Even, the- I don't mean average person, just the average Christian. Average person doesn't have a, 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 a hope of being able to pinpoint this, this stuff when it ties back or has a, a spiritual root to it. But just the average Christian has got to have a lot of discernment to even pick up on this type of stuff that you're you're throwing down today. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm <laughs> sitting here going through this like where did where where did the research come from? <laughs> when you you texted me, what was it about a week ago? And you were like, mm-hmm. "This is going to sound bad, but why are we even doing report from Iron Mountain?" And I was like, two days into. Uh, doing research and stuff. And I was like, oh, buddy, just you wait. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Yeah, you shot back. And I was like, because for me, a lot of times, you know, we're, we have topics. Mm-hmm. Once the topics, we have to plan the topics out. But then there comes a point where we're where we have to deal with whatever we've put on the calendar. And right. I'm not all I'm normally thinking from the standpoint of the audience. I'm like, why should I care? Right. Like, what right. do I care about Iron Mountain? As far as I understand, that's a place that you shred documents. Like it's a document <laughs> shredding service, right? So right, why do right. I care about the fact that they issued a report? I'm sure they have lots of reports, financial ones, how many pieces of paper we recycled. Like I could care less. Why? Right. <laughs> and when you shot back and I was like, ah, this is important. I remember now. <laughs> and it kind but of I had like no some idea. It was this diabolical. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes we do episodes where we both have insight into what we're getting into. And then, you know, yeah. sometimes it's one or the other. So when you were like, I'm not even sure why we're doing this. I was like, okay, this is going to be fun. Cause I was just every page. I was just had all these ideas that were attached to it. It's crazy. I was really about to hit you up and be like, do we need to move iron mountain? Like is this <laughs> something we need to cover. I know we've talked about it before. I remember it coming up a few times, but I'm not really understanding why we're talking about this. Right. This is why. This is why. Yeah, I'm glad you held your ground because this is done. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. So now we get into sociological. Lewin writes that war through the medium of military institutions has uniquely served societies throughout the course of known history as an indispensable controller of dangerous social dissonance and destructive antisocial tendencies as the most formidable of threats to life itself. And as the only one susceptible to mitigation by social organization alone, it has played another equally fundamental role. The war system has provided the machinery through which the motivational forces governing human behavior have been translated into binding social allegiance. It has thus ensured the degree of social cohesion necessary to the viability of nations. No other institution or groups of institutions in modern society has successfully served 
these functions. Now, you put that into context. Yes. And who would think that there's really any profit behind war? I mean, it's only about defending the citizenry of the nation, right? Right, right. It's not about enacting political strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love, um, there's a Crimson Tide with, with Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. They have okay. a scene in there where Denzel Washington serves as the XO on a nuclear submarine and, and Gene Hackman is the, the captain. So Denzel Washington is, is second in command and, and Gene Hackman is the commander of the boat. And they have a scene where they're sitting over with the other officers and they're talking about the, the nature of war. Okay. And I think Denzel's character makes a statement like, I think the nature of war is to serve itself. Because war is a conversation amongst politicians by another means. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, when you really consider it, and the sad reality is that we send other people to fight our the, these wars for the elites. And you and I have talked about on the show plenty of times how often it is that the elites are are actually, you know, the parasitic elite are the ones that are funding both sides of conflict right. in order to move nation states into particular particular um, degrees of subjection and subjugation so that they can get control over those, not just the nation states, but also the resources mm-hmm. that are in those states and the, the people not just the hard natural resources, but the human resources that are there as well, right? They, they want access to both. It would seem that there is great economic interest in creating war. And now here you are going through all of this, showing all of these different aspects that war actually facilitates. Right, right. Like I'm trying to wait to the end of the show, but it's, I'm going to end up raising this question I know. What is peace? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, in a war-driven culture, really, what is peace? When you're told we're we're at peace, are we really at peace? Right. What does peace or is it time just, even mean? Right. Because I think the book, after going through the book, and 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 maybe it's in there and I just missed it, but there didn't seem to be a definition for peace. It just seemed to be the word used to define the absence of conflict. Right. Nuclear disarmament. Cooperation, yeah. no, no conflict, and and this is what peace is. But I'm willing to exactly. bet, without talking to you, that this is not an acceptable definition for peace. Oh, heck's no! <laughs> it's like they say: you're either at war or you're preparing for war. I think that was from an old marriage counseling book I read. Okay, <laughs> right. That should be that should be problematic for marriage counseling material. You're either at war or you're preparing for war. Okay. Sorry. So many, so many ideas just, just coming into my brain at that moment. I wonder if that also, like we talked about how consumerism affected how we view our relationships, right? Yep. You know, that if they're broken, we'll just buy a new one. But I wonder if this, this pagan structure of war being the basis of any nation and, and then even confusing our relationships, if we even um, absorb that idea into marriage, that the core of our marriage is war and competition, because that's all we know in society. Oh, probably so. 
That's interesting. Because like Lewin oh, says, fair. right. Lewin says it's the, it is either the enacting of war or the preparation and the possibility of war that maintains nation states. And then you can He's see right, in time. Right. And you can see that in toxic r- relationships that you're either at war or you have the potential to make war. And that's what's governing your relationship. This is crazy stuff. And if you don't like it, go out and buy another one. Right. If, yeah. if your relationship doesn't work, go get another one. Right. Right. And this time you'll be weather, better equipped for when you go to war. Right. And you, peace, you spent your peace, peace time preparing. Right. And peace in a relationship is just the absence of conflict from, from this. Oh, that's it. That's crazy. It's the eye of the storm. Bro, no, peace is just the eye so of the storm. It's stuff here. Right, right? Peace wow. is the eye of the storm. We just, you're either in the midst of a conflict, preparing for a conflict, or recovering from a conflict. Right. The life cycle of a war based society. Jeez. So peace is just the in between when you're not actively at war. Right, right. Huh. And that's okay. scary because then you got to define actively. Right. Right. If you, if you, from a geopolitical or illegal perspective, if you have not declared war, then technically you're not at war. But then oh. you have institutions using the United States. Like the president ha- or Congress has to declare war for the country to be at war. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, which then puts us in a wartime state legally. Okay. But, we can be involved in several conflicts and not be congressionally declared at war. This is where a military force like the Marine Corps becomes so imperative because you have a relatively small, fairly capable force that is under the direct discretion of the president of the United States, where he can move a, a small contingent military force into various positions to enact military operations without a congressional declaration of war in that particular country. It still means then we're at peace. Yeah, but right. you just placed a Marine expeditionary unit off my, my coast. Yes, but we're at peace. You're not at peace. <laughs> You're going to be in peace is if you well, don't that's get it how, Like America made, uh, um, or enacted trade sanctions against Russia. And trade sanctions are considered an act of war. But we never said we were at war. So it's oh, still we're in the that... political stage. What war? Who said right. anything about war? These are just sanctions. <laughs> I mean, come on. Everybody loves a sanction or two. Matter of <laughs> fact, it's in the good book. It is sanctuary, something like that. That's where they produce these things. Stop your whining, That's Putin. Funny. <laughs> right? Sanctuary. I, 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 you, <laughs> you better hope I don't ever run for politics. Oh, man. I but, hope you do. Hey, no, it'd be horrible. But mm-hmm. it also makes you a little sympathetic to somebody like Putin who's like, hey, y'all, y'all people in the West really don't understand what your people are saying or doing. Right. Right. These are acts of war. Mm-hmm. This is what you use them. They're instruments of war. It's it's why they're there. Right. Exactly. And we're trying to play play the, the fool. You know, we're playing coy. What? Right. War? Who said anything about that? Uh we're, NATO? NATO, <laughs> we, can can you uh can can you can you bomb somewhere over there? I tell you what, how about we just get on their front porch with a neighbor and make them one of our constituents? Can we do that, NATO? 
since 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 we keep having these relationship parallels, like trade sanctions, and Putin's like, um, "Are you okay? What's going on?" America's like, "We're fine. We're fine." <laughs> but I don't, I don't know if you were you fine. Don't no, sound we're fine. fine. <laughs> exactly. We're fine. <laughs> we're fine. You, you do you, boo boo. Yeah. Putin's like, I'm going out with the fellas tonight on the Eastern Bloc. Oh, you are, are you? Uh, sweetheart, I couldn't help but notice I got some trade sanctions. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, the International Bank will be closed when you get back, buddy. There right. will be no transactions available for you. All your assets and mine have been frozen. You you got it? I'll be talking with the neighbor. You going to mess funny. with the neighbor? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to mess with the neighbor. Oh, man. Wonder how, how Ukraine's caught in the middle. They was like, I was just cutting the grass. I don't know what's wrong with the war. <laughs> with y'all. Every daggone day, y'all arguing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Isn't man. it crazy, though? It is. It is. But uh, I think the, the sociological part of or benefit of war has probably gained, at least in, in regards to the the report from Iron Mountain. I think this is the area that's gained the most traction for debate, right? The the creation of a unified enemy required to maintain a stable society. And it's crazy because yeah. I heard, you know, I've heard the Browers talk about it, you know, and, and you hear it a lot because those of us who are attentively watching the events unfold on the world stage, we're familiar with the idea of a constant boogeyman. Now, unfortunately, not the Baba Yaga, right? So beloved from the John Wick franchise. (laughs) But it's like the high table is rolling in the news. Right, right. That's why we keep hearing about Baba Yaga and the Boogeyman. (laughs) But it's the the creation of fear through events to cause a desired effect in the populace. So we often refer to this as the Hegelian dialectic problem reaction, solution. They create a problem, which causes the desired reaction from the people. Then we're offered, or they're offered, a previously devised solution. It's a manner of control. So I was really surprised when I got into this book to see how articulately that Lewin um, brought this up and said that war is the constant answer to control in in the 60s you know so they're not new ideas you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i mean it, i've been I the victim it, of that of the 60s or hegelian dialectic sorry the hegelian <laughs> dialectic and and having having your mindset controlled about a particular section of the the populace and they being deemed the boogeyman i've been the victim on both sides you know, okay. my group of people are often portrayed that way. Okay. So there's an inherent right. fear amongst non-melanin-rich people of melanin-rich individuals. Right. I mean, you could get that back with the the movie The Birth of a Nation, which portrayed people of darker skin as being barbaric, as being monstrous, as being uncivilized. You can even mm-hmm. take that type of rhetoric back further to what was applied to the indigenous population of this country. You know, we're going to bring civilization to the savages which I was hitting that, you know, joking a little bit about earlier. Right. But post 9-11, I was making jokes to people like, I suddenly understand how white people feel. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, I've been looking at people of Islamic descent or of Arabic descent the same way that white people look at black folks in the country. 
They are. I immediately looking with suspicion and guilt. Hmm. I got on an airplane one time, sat next, sat down in my seat, and across from me was a a Middle Eastern guy who was rocking back and forth in his chair, and he had a briefcase. <laughs> I looked at him, right? And I, I, I'm not proud of this moment, but it happened. I looked at him. He looked at me. He kept rocking, and I was like, "Don't start nothing. Won't be nothing." That's what you said. Absolutely, I was scared to death. This is like post nine eleven, <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know why you're rocking in your chair, and you got a briefcase. And I've seen enough movies that depicts people of that ethnicity as terrorists. I got done off the plane. I left shaking because I was sure enough. I was convinced he was a terrorist. Right. Mm-hmm. Got off the plane. We landed safely. No incident. Nothing. I mean, a guy looked at me like I was a moron. And rightfully so. Right. Got off the plane. And I thought about it later. Like, dude, what was that about? And I was prepared. If, if he got up, if he sneezed wrong, we was going fisticuffs. Because right. I'm a big person. And if the plane blows up, I'm falling the fastest. <laughs> that means when I hit the ground, if I live, the plane and everybody else falls on me. This is not going to be a good situation. <laughs> So I thought this through, dude. You don't get to move. You don't get no bathroom breaks. You get nothing. Piss in your cup. And you better not pull the cup out the briefcase. I got all <laughs> eyes on you. I mean, you right. talk about looking with suspicion. Oh, if, if Karen had a husband, it was me. <laughs> on that okay. flight. Oh, dude. Yeah, I had complete suspicion. Where does it come from? It comes from this level. It comes from ignorance. And it also comes from this level of programming. Mm-hmm. When you get introduced to the idea, like, you know, you constantly heard 9-11, Islamic terrorists. Islamic right. terrorists, Islamic terrorists, Islamic terrorists. There's a cognitive conditioning methodology that happens under repetition where that gets lodged in your head. And you immediately, on a subconscious level, identify the two. And it takes mm-hmm. active work to unlearn that because it's intended for you to learn it. Right. And now you're looking at everybody with that level of suspicion. Mm-hmm. And we do it in different ways. You know, before it was Islamic Islamic people or, or Arabic people or Middle Eastern people, it was communists. Okay. Right? The whole red scare. Right, right. So if you're from any of the Eastern Bloc countries, you, you're a communist. You're a commie. Mm-hmm. Trying to take the country down, not just that you have different political views, but you're you're a commie. Let's not even talk about the fact that communism was created by the same people that created capitalism for the sake of diametric control. Mm-hmm. So even this notion that you you come from another system is a system manufactured for the sake of control and the differences between the two sides of that system are pit against each other for further control. Right. But you could take the whole boogeyman thing back further than that. You could take it to us. You could take it to the savages. You could take it to anybody that's different uh-huh. than us. Right. And but I think that's, that's huge. No, it is. It is huge. And it's something they've constantly done, but going back to the report, what do you do if if that war triggered separation of us versus them is taken away? What's the boogeyman for an entire nation of people if it's not an entire other nation of of enemies, right? I'd say it's each other. I'd I was gonna say climate change. 
climate change well, that's is another the one. overarching um because we can't yeah, yeah, they they can't p- properly pit us together and be warring amongst ourselves under the the new world order because it's still chaos within borders right so there has to be something okay. outside of us to get us to unify. Now, I, I don't think you're wrong. They are pitting us against each other now because they have to weaken America to then buy into the new world order. But ultimately, like the the thing that they need to have in place for to um, have communism a level of control. And communism and aliens. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know that's not something you normally hear put together. I'm sorry, uh, I didn't have enough sleep. Not communism. Uh, uh, climate change and aliens. Climate change. That okay. Is what I, mean. I was like, I wonder why you paused. <laughs> I was like, I'm missing. Aliens. We know where this came from. There's <laughs> a cosmic connection between this. But no, oh, I, I think it's funny. it's. Um, I think it, it, it's not coincidental that you're right. You you have such emphasis being put on climate change, and it allows for the political basis of power to make a lot of changes to society, right? And it's the new right. boogeyman. But mm-hmm. on the outskirts of that is this whole disclosure movement, which right. you have presidents. I believe it was Reagan that even talked about how under the threat, a cosmic threat, how easy it would be for us to put away our differences and unify. Uh-huh. Come together well, that was as ma- nation states. That was that what? was that was in the book. That was referenced as a, as a possible thing, either an eternal space race or space exploration or, you know, mm-hmm. um, and he mentioned alien enemies. Yeah. But again, going back to that these have to be tested in complex societies, they have to be sure that they will work before they're put in place. So I think that's what we're seeing now. That's why it's soft disclosure because they have to slowly let it out and, 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 um, test it in smaller groups and in ever expanding ways to make sure that this can be a proper replacement for war because Lucifer doesn't know any other way to control his underlings. Fascinating, dude. It's it's crazy. And it was, it's almost comical because in the report from Iron Mountain, he talked about using the environment. As the boogeyman, as the enemy to get everyone to unify. But he was like, there's no way based off of intelligent people that they're going to buy this. And he was like, we could try 71, right? He wrote this in, it it was published in 67. Okay. But about the same time they're kicking off talks about climate change. It just hadn't become mainstream. Okay. So I can see him going, there's no way people are going to buy it. The irony is, they were working on getting people to buy it. Right, right. He talked about, um, you know, poisoning the water supply, spraying things in the air, intentionally over-polluting the atmosphere to to create an artificial enemy, right? Okay. Th- that's how he was like, we would have to do these things to get people to buy into the fact that the environment is a threat so severe that we should give up civil liberties for it. You created a government agency that's supposed to protect the environment when its true purpose is to leverage land rights over to international foreign agencies. But, and it's, I mean, that's its unofficial 
uh, goal officially is supposed to protect national assets, you know, environmental assets. And when it fails, it makes the threat, the environmental threat look more credible. Mm-hmm. You understand what right. I mean? Yeah, EPA's yeah. He's not able to do its job. Uh-huh. And so there must really be this type of pollution going on because we've got the EPA in place and they wouldn't allow the type of runoff in the sludge and the pollution to the water supplier. They wouldn't allow these types of, of chemicals to be sprayed and they wouldn't allow the air to be polluted in the way that it is. And if this is happening, I mean, really, I think to, that that climate change is a, is a real problem. Not mm-hmm. knowing that the very purpose of the EPA is not to protect the environment. Right, right. I think he would have been shocked to see how how much of a lie, you know, the the or how I guess how small of a lie, but uh, propagated by so many institutions, right? What what the the dumbed down public bought it, right? It's it's so funny because he mentions aliens and he's like. And and the environment and the environment's the one he's like. There's no way that this is going to be a substantial replacement for war because it's just not believable. And here we are, political powers, religious institutions, corporate giants all get behind this idea, and with almost no pushback from the public, despite logical conclusions and the available information, here we are changing our entire society. Giving up civil right. liberties for this particular boogeyman. And exactly. like we've been saying, I think it's so apparent that they're actively testing multiple projects. We are instituting the 17 ESGs of the United Nations for, would they move it up to 2025 now? Uh, yeah, they, they did. From 2030 down to 2025. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all all at the same time, they're trying, you know, the, the soft alien disclosure. They've got to make sure it works. So I think this this gives us the potential to, if we can help push back and get the information out, if we can thwart these plans, we can possibly prolong them implementing them. If we can poke holes in them enough, you know, that they're like, that we can prove that, that these implementation, this type of um, manipulation is not going to work. You know what I mean? So there's a yep. there's a little bit of hope there. It, it, as crazy as these concepts are to wrap your mind around. <clears throat> but, you know, we often say that the parasite class is terraforming the landscape of the world to create an environment suitable for the Antichrist. This is exactly what we're talking about. The report from Iron Mountain systematically breaks down the different ways you have to enact... Um, domination or manipulation or intimidation to maintain control, witchcraft in all of these areas to change the world into what Lucifer wants to bring about the Antichrist. It, it's insane. It is. And this takes us. But it's definitely worth noting the stuff ahead. that you've pointed out because it's a real agenda. Right. Right. It's It's nuts. So this takes us to ecological. Lewin writes that war has been the principal evolutionary device for maintaining a satisfactory ecological balance between gross human population and supplies available for its survival. It is unique to the human species. So in this section, um, there are huge proponents of eugenics. But the issue that Lewin writes about is 
that um, from his perspective, a full-scale eugenics protocol can't be instituted until the new world order is in place. So just for clarification, touching back a little bit to what um, G. Edward Griffin wrote about, they don't use the terms Luciferian or new world order. You know, they use the terms like society for government and um, sustainable for for their power and authority. Um, But for our purposes, it's being, we're using the term new world order synonymously with the future global peace talked about in the book. Just just to make sure we're clear there. For anyone that gets the book and they're like, it wasn't anything like what Operation Red Pill said it was. Right. Blame but, Christopher. Right. My bad. My fault. <laughs> but uh, even if the full-scale eugenics aren't possible until the establishment of the New World Order, they're clearly, clearly attempting smaller-scale aspects of it in the world today. Right? Through vaccines like you know, Bill Gates has talked about through abortions, through Planned Parenthood and the ideological guise of women's rights and the destruction of the nuclear family. And another thing that I thought was absolutely crazy is as I'm going through this, I was like, so much of this seems to line up with Alice Bailey's 10 point charter to usher in the new world order. I'm like, this is insane. So first, to to preface it here, just with the reminder that Christianity, you know, we have gone through a a couple things on Alice Bailey, but how is it that paganism and tolerance makes way for everything else except the church and Christianity? Well, if it's the only cultural institution not based on war, then it functions as the antithesis to everything that they're working for. So that's why she says, you know, take prayer and God out of the education system, reduce parental authority over the children. So you want to destabilize, you know, destroy the Judeo-Christian family structure and the uh, traditional Christian family structure. And this is going to help with um, the population issue, right? If there's not family structures, then there's possibly going to be a a, a reduced amount of um, procreation. If sex is free, then make abortion legal. Here we go. Minor eugenics protocols being put in place. Make divorce easy and legal. Free people from the concept of marriage for life, which applies back to the consumerist mindset, right? You don't need to fix this. You don't have to be stuck with it. Just keep getting new ones. Keep getting new ones. Make homosexuality an alternative lifestyle. That's another one that's going to impact population. Debase art. Make it go run. Make it, oh, make it go run. Make it run mad. <laughs> make it go run. No, this one's, this one's interesting for uh, a different point that Lewin makes. But number eight for Alice Bailey is use media to promote and change mindsets. You know, this applies, in, applies to um, the report from Iron Mountain, create an interfaith movement. I think that'll apply here to the, to the next couple points and then get the government to make all these law and get the church to endorse these changes. You know, I think it's interesting that seven and eight are, are next to each other. Debase art, make it run mad and then use the media to promote and change mindsets. Because recently the Ukraine uh, president actually tapped. Um, what is her name? Melina Abramovich. Yes. The, the, the famed occultist mm-hmm. who, who has a lot. She's really known for her, her, demo, her satanic art. And it's interesting that that's blending over into politics and the media is covering it. 
which has to change your mindset about her, about art, about occultism, and about uh, Zelensky and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. All tied together. Right. I think it's just a modern day example of the very thing we're talking about. Yeah. No, I think you're dead on. And I think that that takes us to the last point, the cultural and scientific benefits of war. Lewin writes, war orientation has determined the basic standards of value in the creative arts and has provided the fundamental motivational source of scientific and technological progress. The concepts that the arts express values independence of their own forms and that the successful pursuit of knowledge has intrinsic social value have long been accepted in modern societies. The development of the arts and sciences during this period has been corollary to the parallel development of weaponry. So essentially what it's saying is that without war motivating victory and defeat or or dictating victory and defeat to inspire the arts and um, uh, not inspiration, but um, what's the other word I'm looking for, Jason? Uh, Imagination. And without okay. the tools, without the tools of war driving technological progress, Lewin says, or the report says, that these things will all but come to a halt in a time of peace. That's interesting. You know, there was a uh, a Big Bang episode that I remember watching where the fellas, you know, Sheldon and Leonard and I, I think Howard, they were all trying to build together like a laser guidance system. Okay, and it was just fun. You know, they, they had the stuff out on the board. They were kind of just going through the ideas, kind of, you know, showing off the who's the smartest and, and what can they do. And mm-hmm. as they're doing this at the university, I believe a, a Air Force general walks by and sees and goes, is this schematics for a, a, a guidance system? And they're like, yeah. And he goes, I want. And they were like, <laughs> oh, no, we were just doing. He was like, no, no, no. They were like, we're just doing this for fun. He was like, Mm-mm, no, I want. Um. I'll give you, I'll give you three months. And it basically gets them to create a guidance system, but a smaller one. Okay. And then it was going to go into obviously some form of munitions. And the guys had a problem with that because they didn't want to build war weapons. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the thing behind that is a, it really serves as an, as an example of how much and how often the military flu influences advancement. Right. Within the civilian sector. Mm-hmm. For sure. And because the government is one of the largest buyers of things. The government doesn't make anything. Right. It procures it's, contractors. Yep. Yep. Right. And one of the largest pro- procurers of contractors is the Department of Defense, i.e. the military. Mm-hmm. You get you a government contract, you are in good. Right. Right. That, that's something you wish as long as you don't have a, a government shutdown. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're constantly, constantly pushing innovation for the sake of military weapon advancements, which serves the war machine. Mm-hmm. So without that, I think this, the book is right. Like, how would you replace that? What, what would be the impact on a, a cultural and scientific level, given the fact that war serves as the engine for producing a lot of these sociological advancements we have? I think the one thing, though, that keeps coming up that I see missing is that in order to answer the question across these five regions, you know, talking about these five areas of economic, political, sociological, ecological, cultural, scientific, 
The thing that stands out as the biggest absence is the fact that we don't acknowledge a creator God. Mm -hmm. Because if we did, you'd have solutions and you'd have plugins to fill the gaps that war would leave. Right, right. Huge. Even in this, you don't need a military industrial complex to promote advancement. You need creativity and a God divine purpose. Mm -hmm. And you can still advance as a society. Right. You don't need instruments of war for that. Right. Because we covered, what was it? Um, Episode 80, Person of Interest, The Fallout. It details the massive impact that Jesus had on art and the sciences. Now, it's interesting because Lewin concluded in the absence of war that no contrivance begins to remedy the impact of peace on technological growth in the arts. So they couldn't, whether it was Lewin or it was actually this 15-person secret study group by the government, they could not come up with any idea to supplement technology and art. None whatsoever. None. No ideas. On all the other ones, they were like, well, we can try this. We can try blood sports. We can try lying about the environment or aliens. When it comes to this one, they offered nothing. And I think we see like scratches at the idea, you know, Alice Bailey's 10-point charter, like you were saying, debase art, make it run mad. And then even um, Abramovich, right? She's done all types of yeah. art. They do the the soul cooking and all this stuff. So they're trying to fabricate aspects of art. But where the world finds no answer, we already have one in Jesus Christ, right? And I know, I know how that sounds. It, it's the churchy sound that you hated that the church is founded on love, but it doesn't change the fact that it's actually true. Now, one of the posts that we did for episode 80 that I just referenced, the um, person of interest, the fallout, it it says this, did you know Jesus Christ has more than 109 million books written about him? He has been featured in more art in every era and genre than any other person in history. His followers have propelled science forward in nearly every field and advanced education more than any people group in history. Even those with thousands of years head start didn't even come close. So there is something other than war that inspires innovation and creativity, but it's not atheism. It's not spiritualism. It's not witchcraft. It's Jesus Christ. And we've had the answer to Lewin's question all along. I think that's fascinating. That's dope. So Jason, with me laying all this out, how would you say that this plays into the satanic control matrix that us here at ORP are commissioned to reveal? Because I'd hate for people to get this far into the episode and have nothing to take away from it but this. Well, I don't want them taking that away either. (laughs) Um, It's it's such a broad... Uh, first off, I mean, you you did a phenomenal job, dude, laying all of this stuff and and taking the information uh, from that manuscript and condensing it down into notes for for this episode. Thanks. And, and within that, you had so many mic drop moments <laughs> because there are these huge concepts that are interlaced and form the bedrock structure of this idea of the prominent role that war plays and what would you feel in its absence. 
that even just to get your mind around that, which you kind of need to try to understand how does this interplay with a satanic control matrix. And for those who aren't aware, the satanic control matrix is a mechanism, an apparatus that the, the kingdom of darkness developed in order to offset Satan's inability to be sovereign and to mimic God's sovereignty. And what it's designed to do is to institute control across all of society, but primarily in three readily apparent levels. You, you want to institute control over the individual, you want to institute control over social groups and you want to institute control over the entire the entire globe globe. And so what you're doing at the individual level is you're using institutions like demonically inspired educational systems that break a person's will down and get them ready to accept programming on a much larger level. And you, you take those individuals, you run them into large scale social groups and you use satanic mind control methods to influence the thinking of those social groups. And then you take the social groups and you plug them into institutionalized systems of evil and control that form a, a global control system or structure that you would call the new world order. And it's designed to achieve several different agendas and aims, but ultimately it's designed to, to suppress humanity and to exploit the purpose of humanity being created in the first place in order to weaponize that exploitation against Yahweh. It's huge when you understand its implementations. Something like the report from Iron Mountain helps to understand it unfolds, like you said at the very beginning, how that happens from the standpoint of those who are in the mix, you mm -hmm. know, from a deconstructionist view. And we see the different layers of the satanic control matrix present, even in the things that we've covered today. Well, what do you mean? The idea of creating a consumer based economy in an economy that runs on a consumer-based mindset is first fostered on that first individual tier of control, of controlling the person. It happens in the school system. It happens in the educational system. Then you roll people out into these social groups that are being controlled from a political perspective. They're being controlled from a an economic perspective they're being controlled you know sociologically um even from a culture of cultural scientific and an ecological perspective they're being brainwashed into accepting various aspects and various um, ideas that come out of those fields that get them thinking a certain way and then we run them into systems of control on a global level that produces war and conflict that's exploited. And I think you, again, you've been right on the money. Humanity is involved in a cosmic war. Mm -hmm. We're both the prize and the pawn in that war. I think it was, uh, why can't I think of his name? L.A. Marzilli, who calls it the cosmic chess match. Right, right. Right, move and counter move that's being done by, by these two spiritual camps one headed up by the Most High Yahweh, and the other headed up by uh, by by Lucifer, the one who will remain unnamed. And in between, again, is, is humanity that's having to 
to not only fight for our existence, but it's also being exploited so that we fight for, we fight against our creator while fighting for our oppressor. Mm. And in order for what scripture says is going to happen, which is all of humanity that, whose names are not written in the book of life, will be involved in intergalactic conflict against the creator himself. In order for that to happen, you have to put a lot of things in place to get eight, nine billion people on on par. One, you got to reduce how many people you have so that you have less resistance. Mm -hmm. We only want the best of the best, which really means we only want the most controllable of the, the most controlled of the controllable. Interesting. And once we weed yeah. out the undesirables, the ones that will resist, the ones that that will not bow the knee, the ones that even will not necessarily go against the enemy or go against Yahweh, but also won't come into into lockstep with us. And by us, I mean speaking from the enemy's perspective. You want to take them out too, because we only want the most committed. And so we right. see that being enacted in these various agendas. We see that in what you were pointing to earlier with poison, population control, the poisoning of our food, the changing of our mindsets. I mean, poisoning our food has a systemic impact on the cognitive ability of a person is poison. Right. They tend to become more docile. They tend to accept suggestive rhetoric. They tend to be less aggressive, way more passive. That can be utilized. That can be weaponized. You know, you look at the constant changing and weaponizing of our environment, in particular our atmosphere. That is playing a role, not just in poisoning us as a species and not just in poisoning other forms of life, but it's also playing a role in restructuring the planet, which was changed post Genesis six, post flood or not Genesis six, but post flood after God reset the timeline. So there's been a, a constant effort by the the forces of darkness to reinstitute the order they had, the world order they had prior to the institution of the flood. And part of that is re-energizing the environment, re-energizing the atmosphere so that the the connection that was done in order to facilitate, let's call it false sovereignty, because Satan is not a sovereign being. He doesn't have all power, but he could pass himself off as being all powerful via this integrated network of evil that he had set up, including the energizing method, the energizing um, power that went behind that grid. You know, these were things like the the pyramids and other things that we had going on. God turned the pyramids off after the flood. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a a increased effort to reinstitute reinstitute that network. And we see that happening even in the energizing of our atmosphere. We see that happening at the same time with quantum computing and D-wave computing that's coming online. The wireless communications that we have happening. And at the same time, the electromagnetic assault on the human body. The fact that our brain is being assaulted via the fact that our body is being assaulted as we walk through this energized atmosphere. You know, there is a patent that exists. I, I had you look it up one time. I didn't have you look it up. I think I sent you the number you looked it up. But it okay. was a a patent that that actually identified the fact that we have the ability to transmit ideas via cellular networks and mm -hmm. wireless communication. 
right? So you can literally affect the way a person thinks through wireless transmissions of electromagnetic energy. We have directed energy weapons. We have targeted individuals that are still dealing with being attacked. We have all of this stuff going on and it might seem like it's tangential to what's happening. It might seem like these are outliers, like this is just one-offs or things that happen, but essentially we are dealing with the fallout of an organized satanic regime trying to take over full control of our planet so that they can exploit and weaponize humanity in an assault against the most high. This is how this applies. And the crazy thing to me is when a person kind of steps back and begins to wrap their, their head around the true vast nature of what's happening, you're going to find those people that seem to be apathetic to it. And they seem to be like, so what? Who cares? You know, this is it's not as bad as it seems. We're really moving forward. Life is improving. We, we'll, we'll deal with some of the issues we have in, quote unquote, third world countries. We're going to elevate the standard of living. We're going to absorb some of these sustainable goals. And as we do that, things are going to continue to improve. That person, believe it or not, is the type of person that unfortunately has drank the Kool-Aid. They bought the lie. They're living in under the notion that although they are positioned on a beachhead, they're actually thinking that they're back home safe and the reality is you are not in kansas anymore you are on pandora ladies and gentlemen respect that fact every second of every day out there beyond that fence every living thing that crawls flies or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You got to obey the rules. Obey the rules. The rules of engagement. Number one, educate yourself. We've got to know what the Bible, we have to know what war doctrine tells us. And this is going to help develop that strong mental aptitude. So scripture tells us that there will be no end to the rule of Jesus Christ. And this is, just rereading it again after the episode is is blowing my mind a little bit. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. So this first part we hear all of the time, especially in the, the colder season around Christmas, but the rest of it a lot of times gets left off. So it says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders... And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So first off, I think that we can take um, uh, comfort in the fact that we know that his government isn't going to end. But I think it's interesting that two times it talks about peace, the Prince of Peace and his government and peace, there will be no end. So it seems like what we were saying, we have some uh, a little bit of scriptural contextual backdrop and support for the idea that the, the, the government and the kingdom of the Most High God is not one that's founded on principles of war, but on principles of peace. And to that government, yeah. there will be no end. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. Especially when you have all of history testifying to the atrocities that are committed in the name of war. Right. 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 All of the broken heart parts, all of the 
the wounds, the fractured souls, the, the traffic soul fragments, the torture, the, the bloodshed, the altered timelines, all of this stuff that has been the, the outworking and outpouring of a war effort designed to topple Yahweh will be no more. Now, I always thought that it would kind of suck because I want to get into heaven and then I really want to learn how to fight. But the irony would be by the time I get there, there's nobody left to fight. You know, fighting is not necessarily a thing we'll have to do then. However, I think it's really cool that we serve a God that is able to fill in the gaps that a war machine leaves. You don't need war to live a to have a thriving society and to live a, a thriving life. You understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't need that. And I think that when we're birthed in a culture that constantly um, runs off of that and espouses that idea, knowing or unknowing the, even just the notion of living in a, a utopia that doesn't have conflict can actually be a little discomforting because it's a, it's a normal we don't understand. Right. And I think it's so awesome that we serve a God and that that the Most High offers a perpetual existence that far exceeds anything you can know now. And it mm-hmm. doesn't require war. It doesn't require conflict. Right. It doesn't require conquest. It doesn't require exploitation. It doesn't require toppling your enemy. It doesn't require competition. It just requires you being who you were created to be in relationship, divine connected, perfected relationship with the most high and your fellow created brother. I think that's dope. Yeah. It is. And it, as you were talking, I was looking up the definition because we were talked about like the definition of peace or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Hebrew word shalom means peace. So like if just used once, you know, it's to, to, to mean harmony, peace, wholeness, completeness, you know, things like that. But the, um, the greeting or the, um, the term to say, say goodbye would be shalom, shalom. And this means perfect peace which indicates wholeness, nothing lacking, nothing wanting. This is a completely different definition of peace is just what it is in the absence of something else. It's peace is not a void. It's all of those, the, all of the needs being met. Peace is in right. how God actually orchestrated it to be. So I just, I, I, I thought that was, that was interesting. That's cool. Scripture also warns us that the world will worship the beast. Revelation 13, 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So there is this, this institution that is going to come. And reading this again, it seemed, I'd have to do a little bit more uh, exegesis on this, but it said that it seemed to have a fatal wound. It seems it it appears that even in the institution of gaining the um, allegiance of the entire world, that deception is even in the midst of that. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that there's yep. not going to be some signs and some crazy things that happen, but just in this phrasing in Revelation 13, it seems that deceit is part of gaining this this world order, right? I got you. So that's kind of crazy. 
And then the last thing is that scripture anticipates the destruction of our enemy. Isaiah 14, 15 through 17. But you were brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you and they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew the cities and would not let his captives go home? That's the dude that's going to be thrown down to the realm of death. So it is. it can seem a little hopeless sometimes when you look at this, that these institutions, these think tanks, these agendas from, I mean, just going back to the, the late 60s, we know that they went you know back further than that, and how it is intricately playing a role in our finances and our civil liberties and our police force, like all the stuff we talked about today. It's a lot of stuff. But we can take heart that ultimately all of this planning is going to be for not because he's going to get thrown down. And we'll be like, this is the dude? This guy? No, so, we won't. We won't? No. That said down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Uh, okay, that's fair. You, but okay, I, I nope, you're right. Being there. You're right. You're right. That's fair. <laughs> The, but the, there will the, be those. Right. There will there be those. Say that. Yeah. Uh, my, my celestial geography was off a little bit there. My bad. Oh, no problem. No problem. It happens to the best. <laughs> but this takes us right to, uh, you know, since we're talking about where the ground that you're standing on and me not knowing where it is, it takes us to rule number two. That's funny. Do not cede any ground to your enemy. Yo, that, that's such a critical rule to follow. Uh, because you're dealing with you're dealing with a tactician in a kingdom that understands the value of the inch. If you can take a subsequent series of inches, you eventually get a mile, right? Mm -hmm. And if you get a series of miles, you've collected a lot of ground. Here's the problem, though. This is the, the real issue that we see is not just an inability to to fight the war of inches. I mean, that, that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. But the bigger problem is that you're dealing with an enemy that's not only a master of taking an inch, he is an enemy cloaked in a disguise of stealth. It is extremely hard to see him coming at you. What do you do? How do you stop an enemy that you don't know is there? How do you fight an enemy you can't see? How do you fight an enemy that tells you he doesn't exist? You have to have discernment. Yeah.
way to see an enemy that is undetectable is to learn to see him via the tools given by a God who sees everything. And you can only get that by availing yourself to the biblical counteroffensive strike package. Now, what is that? That is a three-phased assault plan that gives you the authorization to expose the position of the enemy, oppose his forces, and tear down his works. Ephesians 5.1 tells you have no fellowship with the works of darkness, but expose them. James 5.7 tells you subject yourself to the authority of scripture and then use that authority to resist the devil. And finally, 2 Corinthians 10.5 gives you the ultimate authority to demolish every argument, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of what God has said is true, which in turn keeps people from knowing God himself. This is how you free them. You know, that whole truth is or truth leads to freedom. This is how that happens. But you have to exercise those three things. And in order to do that, it takes you headlong into rule number three, which is pray like it's all up to God, but work like it's all up to you. Christopher, what are some things that we could pray for? Well, the Bible tells us that we should pray for peace with our governments, right? I won't do that. Well, I it sounded weak to me too before this episode, but now we, I can see it completely different because this peace that we're praying for runs in direct opposition to the structure of the government itself. Like, isn't that a crazy thought? Like before it's it like- It is, but you need to elaborate. Well, like we talked about earlier, if war is the fun is the is fundamentally the thing that all pagan nations are structured from, right? And the church is based off of off of peace, and God is calling us to pray for peace with our government. This is an element that they that I mean, clearly since 1967, they have a hard time coming to terms with. They're not sure okay. how to handle it. It's a destructive force in a war-laden pagan structure. So now I so can kind of— the other way then— Go ahead. I was going to say, I guess the other way of envisioning that then is that if God tells you to pray for peace in a institution built on war, that you are essentially praying for the over—I don't even want to say overthrow, but you're praying for the overture of that— that institution, mm-hmm. like it's going to have to be overhauled or destroyed. Right. Because it functions it, on the very thing that's antithetical to the thing you're praying for. Right. It's crazy. I'm like, okay, that, that, that one seems like it packs a little bit more of a punch than I thought before. <laughs> right. And of course this is coming from a spiritual level first. Right. Right. So it's not talking about necessarily taking up arms against your government. That's not what we're talking about. Right, right. What it's talking about is dealing with the most important part of any institution, and that is the idea that it's built on. Right. This is the nuclear, uh, the nuclear uh, option, if you will, mm-hmm. because it gets right to the core. It deals with the the atomic structure of that entity, and you know they've already shown us if you split that atom, if you split that atomic idea that they're holding on to, all hell breaks loose. Right. And this is how you do it. Pray for peace. Crazy, right? I wonder when Jesus says that stuff, he like, he chuckles a little bit. Like, (laughs) pray for peace. Right. (laughs) Like, you don't even know what this is. Huh? I mean, that's the noisy cricket. You know, we're always talking about prayer being the noisy cricket. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 
Well, he says, pray for peace, my son. And then turns around. You can't see him. He's got his back to the camera. He's like, <laughs> if they only knew. Right. Exactly. It's not breaking the fourth wall, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's they're like, funny. they're not going to pray. All they're going to do is be obedient. I don't need to tell them it's a nuclear option. You should tell them. <laughs> no, no. I want them just to do it. Right. Right. I think we should also pray for peace within ourselves, though, because a lot of this institution is to fracture our internal fortitude, to turn us into consumers, to get, even change our DNA. So I think um, properly orienting ourselves under the created order, it's a little redundant, but within ourselves first, and then having God you know, pray that he trains our hands for war so we can enact that in the society around us. I, I think is a good idea. And then l- lastly, I think that we should um, pray against the forces at work in these institutions that are set out to enslave us. Because at the core of all of it is, like you were saying before, is spiritual. This is this right. is all, all the things that we see in the world is the false reality overlay that they're... they're um, performing these duties under the direct authority of spiritual forces to enact a spiritual agenda. And, and, and that's where we should um, direct our prayers, at least some of our prayers. I mean, we can pray for things in the physical, but if, if we're only dealing with symptoms, then we're not really addressing the problem. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So uh, that's definitely something that we can, we can pray about. As far as work, uh, I think we have to become the church. Now, part of that might consist in going to a a church, but that's not what we're saying here. I think we must become the church, the culture built on the Prince of Peace. You know, the the greatest stumbling block for the new world satanic Luciferian system is Christ followers becoming the church. And that's definitely something that we need to do. Whether that means that you just um, develop a close-knit group of people, right? That, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can come in a, in, a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I mean, I think a, a lot of the ways the uh, Christian Conspiracy Coalition with Drew Mission, Mission functions, you know, like a church. But... Um, one of the things that I think you mentioned in, in, in a previous one is that we are not separate from our faith. We must embody our faith, right? It's not two different things. Our behavior yeah, yeah. has to change. So if we are confessing with our mouths that we are serious Christ followers, then our behavior needs to change that. And that behavior based in a governmental institution founded on peace is going to help be a huge stumbling block in this new world order system. Exactly. We also know that this system is designed to destroy the individual and destroy a self-sufficient populace. You know, it was part of the whole developing um, consumerism. So I think that one of the things that we can do to help is to be self-sufficient. And this is, this is first going to start, like the first thing that a lot of people, when they hear that is they go, well, I don't know what to do. I live in a uh, apartment or I don't have any land and I don't know how to do this or that. 
just like the instituting overproduction is an issue, you had to change the mindset of the populace. So before we go down the the road on these are the things that you physically have to do, I think being self-sufficient first is something that has to change in our mind, right? This is something that we have to be, that we, we want to be producers and not consumers. And, and once we really latch onto that idea, then we can do things like maybe growing your own food. You can, um, you know, set up small greenhouses. I mean, very small, like bookshelf size greenhouses by a window, even in an apartment. And you can grow um, herbs and things like that. Um, uh, you can join a co-op and, and that's really uh, cool. It's where you, everybody kind of pitches in because sometimes when you branch out and wanting to get farm fresh fruits or a cow, like that's, it's a lot of money. So there's institutions mm-hmm. that are set up called co-ops that you get a group of people that all pitch in and then you share from it. So, so that is a great way to help uh, become self-sufficient. Um, go to local farmer's markets. You know, you can purify and store water. We've talked about that. You can get distillers. Uh, there's all th- all kinds of things that you can do. If you want more specifics, um, you know, reach out to us. We're not, by no means are we experts in the field. But if you're interested for some more specifics and, and you know, we might be able to point you in the right direction or, um, you know, uh, put you in contact with people that can help, let's talk at orppodcast.com. You know, what... Uh, prayer requests, uh, help with actual things that you can do. You know, maybe if you just heard something in a podcast and you're having trouble finding it from the hours and hours of content, we're here for you. Reach out. You know, we, we want to be able to help. We're trying to build that community. We're trying to be the church to push back against this, exactly. this war-driven society. So. Exactly. Um, and sharing the show, like our show is growing all the time. So that's another thing that people are doing. That's, that's work that people are doing. And and we appreciate that. We really do. Um, You know, we, we do this because we believe it's what God called us to do, but it's really neat to see the people that we reach, the positive impact that we've had and the growth that we see. I I mean, week by week is, is pretty awesome. So thank you so much for sharing the show. It's been really cool, man, because we, we get people that drop us lines and, Tell us how certain episodes have really impacted him. We're like, really? That episode? That's cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm so happy that one did it. You know, right. but it's 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 like each time, each time you do an episode, you're almost like dropping a seat in the ground and you don't know exactly what it's gonna grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really cool to see how it helps other people. So we definitely love getting that feedback. Like, like Christopher said, you hit us up at let's talk at orpodcast.com or you know, any of the other ways that, that we have. Social media is a great way. Instagram, you know, we're at ORP Podcast. You can hit us up there, get a lot of traffic there, which is really cool. And, right. Um, right. Yeah, tell us how the stuff impacted you. You got questions, hit us up there too. It's great. Yeah, that's super cool. And if you want if you want more than just interacting with us on social media, consider joining our Patreon. So you can find us at our home site at orppodcast.com. But if you want to join Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash orppodcast. 
So right now we're running on, we got three different tiers. So our cover fire tier, tier one, five bucks a month, gets you all the links and resources we use to make an episode, which will help, you know, if you're wanting to take those steps and, and do a little bit more research and stuff, uh, that'll help you out. Uh, and all of our bonus episodes, like anything we do as far as episodes, full length, bonus, extras, you'll get all the audio that we record for public use will be there in the, in the Patreon for sure. And that's, that's just five bucks a month. Uh, the next tier, our Overwatch tier, tier two is $7 a month, gets you everything from tier one, as well as access to the actual studio notes that we're looking at as we run the episode. There's always little like jokes or, um, uh, things that we don't have a chance to cover, tidbits, things like that. It's a good behind the scenes, you know, if you want to feel more like you're a part of Operation Red Pill. And then the last one is our Bring the Rain tier, tier three, 10 bucks a month, everything in the first two tiers, as well as an opportunity to participate in a monthly Zoom call with both Jason and I. And and those are a blast. Always a good time. Gives us a Love chance it. to... Yeah, it gives us a chance to cover some current events, explore some ideas, um, you know, get some uh, little Q and A. If you're curious about some stuff, it's it, it's it's great. But here's the last thing that you can do: remind yourself of what Scripture tells us, which is we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. And we have a community of believers all over the world and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. Because one day we will be citizens of a heavenly kingdom. One day peace will be the foundation, not the, not the obstacle of the society that we live in. And one day we will freely live under the kingship of our creator. But until then... We are deployed to this dystopian rock by our Savior-in-Chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission here, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But we still gotta go get them. Now, our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me, if you take fire, we expect you to give fire. Now we need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. You stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're sitting right next to you and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.